You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 394. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is reported on the 4th of October, 2019. In today's episode, a vintage World War II plane crashes in Hartford, Connecticut, taking several lives. A new information on last year's fatal mid-air refueling collision. More news, your feedback, and in today's plane tales, après moi les déluges part two. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 394 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger Stern, Emmy Award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds, in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we cover the latest in aviation news and answer your feedback. I am Captain Jeff in my 31st year of flying for a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia, which I like to call Acme Airlines. And... I'm joined by some awesome hosts, and let's start with this one from her luxury hacienda on the Bay of Biscay in Spain's mountainous Basque country. A doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument-rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Luxury hacienda, eh? I like the sound of that. Yeah. Looks nice. Yeah. From yeah, the video. It is, it's actually really, it's, it's really nice. Uh, <laughs> we'll get to that a little bit in just a little bit, but lovely to be with you this evening and looking forward to a great show. We're so glad that you could make it. Take a little time out of your little, whatever you're doing over there. I'm sure you're going to tell us. And also joining us from his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, former captain for an international airline based in London, and currently one heck of a great guy. It's Captain Nick. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. I was just thinking, it sounds like all my best years are behind me. That's for sure. That was the best compliment he could come up with for the future going forward. <laughs> well, I still have what I wrote last week, and I'm not sure you actually heard what I said. I said one huge pain in the neck for his amazing wife, Jilly. Did you hear me say that last week? Uh, no. I don't think you did, because you didn't really have any response to that. And I'm, th- I'm thinking, wow. Okay, I guess he didn't take offense at all to that. So. No, I was probably playing with my big ass. <laughs> well, that sounds like a, a personal issue. Well, I am a great fan of the big ass fan company. So yes, so. the uh, the fan company. Yes, uh, remember. Uh, family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. Thank you, Matt Smith from the PTUK, uh, and uh, thanks to all of you in the UK. Um, or on the PTUK that just finished their live recording. And it was great. Really enjoyed that. That was Carlos and Matt and Armando and a special guest host, Myla. And uh, so 
for those of you who just finished watching that, welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. We'll do our best. I know we're no match for that crew, but we're going to do our best to give you a good show here today. And do we uh, have to. We have Don't, to, yes. We have to try. To live quietly at 50%. Well, mm -hmm. I, you know, good isn't 50% good. That's good to me. Okay. Uh, sorry. It's glass half full, Nick. Did, glass did, half full. Sounds didn't, good to me. I didn't say great show. I <laughs> didn't mean to, anyway. It's good. Yeah, okay. my, my beer is definitely more than half empty. <laughs> well, uh -oh. Might have to uh, remedy that at some point. But before you do, let's first talk to Dr. Steph and figure out a lot of people that are watching the video right now are saying, hmm, that does not look like your normal home studio, Steph. No, it's not. My normal home studio is mm, a couple thousand miles away. Uh, I'm currently in San Sebastian, Spain, in that country. And I'm just here for vacation. So Excellent. I have no other agenda uh, than that. I'm actually here with a group of folks that I know from the Charlotte area. Um, I dragged my dad along, so he is here. And we are just going to spend the next eight days or so kind of exploring the area and having good food and good wine. And mm. decent weather today was a little bit uh, misty all day. But apparently that happens on occasion, or regularly, I should say. And a little bit of rest, relaxation, and then next, not this weekend coming up, but the next weekend is the Chicago Marathon. So I'm just here to, to recharge a little. Excellent. I was in Chicago on Monday night, Tuesday all day, and then left Wednesday yeah. morning, and I was expecting it to be nice and cool because it's been hot, as you know, Steph, here no. in uh, the southeast. <laughs> It yeah. was it was not cool at all. It was. I was there three weekends ago, two weekends ago. Yeah. I don't know. Lost track of all days. But I went. I did my last long run while I was there, of twenty miles, and I was expecting it to be hopefully cooler than than Charlotte, which it was temperature wise. But the humidity was through the roof. Um, I ran the morning after a wedding, so I was not super hydrated. Let's just say, and I managed to find a hilly part of the suburbs. So it was not a fun last long run. And I'm hoping it's going to be much cooler next weekend. We shall see. Fingers crossed. I think it's going to be, um, actually. Um, but Yeah, I think I think it's cooled off a lot, actually. I think it's much cooler there today. Good. So hopefully it sticks. Excellent. Well, you know, I didn't really intend to go right on into our getting to know you segment, but I did because it's just a habit pattern and I wasn't really mm -hmm. thinking. But uh, So we're just going to stick with it. Uh, anything else new, Steph, before we go on? Well, Nick? so, yeah, I should mention, um, got here on, day did I get here? Yesterday. Um, left Wednesday night, got here yesterday, about mid-afternoon, by the time, you know, a couple connections and layover times in uh, JFK and also in Madrid. Flew the uh, A350, on the A350, I should say with Iberia up in the business class, which was very nice. So had a lot of rest on the way over uh, pretty good meal as well. And then got here, had a little bit of time to kind of wander around for a few minutes. And then we were planning on doing a uh, Pinchos tour, which is Basque tapas um, and wine and whatnot and beer basically. And you've heard of Lisboa Nelson before. Oh uh, yeah. He, he came all the way from Lisbon to hang out for the evening and wow. join the Pinchos tour. So that was awesome. So thank you again, Nelson, for coming all this way. Um, I actually was uh, going on to um, other locations after here for the weekend. So uh, hopefully he, he, the rest of his travels were safe and he is there now. 
And I did want to say thank you to him for the uh, gift that he brought over. Hold on, I have to grab it. I have not taken it out of the, uh, I'm sure he, the uh, packaging yet. But oh, this is exciting. Looks like <laughs> looks like some uh, Portuguese wine. Ooh, that looks like so. the Portuguese wine that he got for me. And if it is, it's very delicious. Yeah, it looks wonderful. So my thanks to Nelson again. It was far too kind, sir. Uh, had some great conversation with him last night. And yeah, good times. Excellent. And then... And the weight balance is totally off on my camera again. Yeah, that's okay. It'll video. it'll come back. <laughs> yeah. um, so did you meet up with anybody else in the community um, this past week since the last show? Yes. Oh. Um, yeah, for bringing me back. I'm, the days all blur together. I can't yeah. remember which day we actually did a show here. So let's back up to last weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did our show Friday. Friday. Mm-hmm. Yep, Friday. Friday. Okay. So Sunday, um, uh, our friend Pilot Pip, he had his recurrent training, which he does in the United States. Um, and he decided to stop by Charlotte for about mm, not quite two days. Um, on his way to training facilities in uh, medium-sized Midwest airport area. And so he was over at my house for a while. Armando, who lives, um, Armando from PTUK, who lives in the area as well, came down. And we spent a little bit of time out on the lake, did some paddleboarding, had a really great meal. I think Armando and Pip went flying on Monday. Unfortunately, I had to work. Um, but I met up with work. him briefly over. I know, I know. Work, work, didn't have work, enough advance. Work, 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 work. work. <laughs> um, if I wasn't in between a couple other trips, um, and if I had a little more advance notice, I probably would have been able to get some time off on that day, but um, that wasn't going to happen on this, <laughs> this yeah, particular you, week. You've been uh, gone more than you've been there, I think, recently, right? Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, maybe not. Well, you're so, such a valuable um, employee. I'm sure they let, um, it, they let it ride. Well, um, I'm just taking the... Um, What's in my contract in terms of available vacation days? There you go. Let's say that. Making the most of it. Can't can't let those days go to waste. Mm-mm. And um, so yeah, so that was great. It was great to see Pip always. Um, good to have Armando and his lovely bride uh, Megan come down for a while as well. We should probably hang out more often since we live, you know, basically on opposite sides of the same city. And then, but wait, there's more. More? That was Monday night. Wow. Tuesday night, um, Colonel Jeff was in town. So, right oh. up with him for dinner as well. Excellent. Charlotte layover. So yeah, it's been a it's been a packed week since I saw you guys last. It has. Awesome. Oh, and I did a little bit of flying. Oh. On Saturday. Yeah, I uh, was down at Skydive Carolina, and instead of jumping out of the airplanes, I had the chance to sit in the right seat of the Twin Otter for a couple of loads. So that was fun. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I had not flown that airplane before. Nice. That's one that I haven't flown. Well, there are a lot of them I haven't flown. <laughs> but, yeah. Okay. Wow. A lot of stuff going on with Dr. Steph. Good to hear it. Yeah, I'm yeah. jealous of you getting in that 350. Apart from the passenger experience, uh, mm-hmm. how did the jet look? And uh, and was it nice and quiet? Or uh... Yeah, it was. So my experience was great. It was very quiet. Um, if anything, it was one of those flights where I almost wished it was a little bit longer because you're trying to get some sleep on a overnight red eye flight, but it was, um, you know, from seat four a, it was very quiet. The wing and engine were way back there. Um, right. Was it a 1000 or no, 900. 900. Okay. Um, 
very smooth. Um, sure, that probably had more to do with the uh, atmospheric conditions over the Atlantic yeah. than much else, but uh, it was a nice ride. Very comfortable. Good. good. Yeah. Very good. So, uh, Captain Nick, what have you been up to since our last show? Well, my little section is going to be very quick, Jeff, because not a lot is the answer to that. Um, finished the lecture at Coventry, uh, started uh, my next plane tale, which I just finished uh, yesterday, um, preparing the lecture for Boscombe Down, which I'm doing for the Royal Aeronautical Society there on Tuesday. So um, uh, that luckily is a lecture I've done before, so uh, not much involved other than making sure it you know, it runs okay. And uh, that's it, really. Um, I've got um, Jamboree on the air meeting tomorrow. The, the Cub Scouts and the uh, Scouts, I don't think you have a scouting movement in America. They have an annual uh, uh, Jamboree when they ever get on the airwaves with uh, amateur radios or hams. And all the Scouts around the world try and chat to each other. So helping out with that by providing some radio equipment and some expertise. Hmm. And then um, we're having a nice uh, end-of-the-season prize-giving at the bowling uh, club, going out to a, a place where we tend to gather in the middle of the town and uh, have lots to drink and hand out all the trophies. And uh, that's it, really. Uh, I'm, I'm already uh, well into the next uh, plain tale, and I've realized that I'm not going to be able to do this subject, which I'm covering in uh, three. It's going to have to be four. And I was trying to work out three is a triplet. What's four? A quadruplet. Quadruplet. Yeah, that's what I would have assumed, but uh, I wasn't actually sure. A quadruplet. You know, you kind of you kind of glossed over something there that uh, maybe I just didn't quite understand you. You said you were doing the thing with the scouts, and then you're going to be doing a lot of drinking. <laughs> wow, really? No, How old no, do you have the, to be uh, to the, drink over there? That's the that's the bowls prize giving. Oh, it's I'm sorry. Bowls, bowls prize giving. That I'm, was the next event. I must have been like uh, there was a lapse yeah, of were, attention that I had there. Yeah, I thought you were still your talking. Eyes over for a moment. <laughs> you can't see them from here. Yeah. Crucial, crucial part. There. <laughs> no, we take all the boys, uh, all the scouts, to the uh, pub, and we have a. Great yeah, we're gonna yeah, do we're, we're gonna right. do some ham radio stuff, and then we'll end with drinking. Uh, yes, exactly <laughs> right. Okay, I'm glad you. I'm glad I, uh, you straightened that out with me. Okay, good, good. Yeah. So that's it for me and uh, everything. Tickety boo. Thank you. Tickety boo. All right. Uh, let's see. I mentioned um, just a, a little bit ago that I was on a trip in Chicago, on a layover in Chicago. Left on Monday, got there Monday evening, and then I was there all day Tuesday, and then left early morning Wednesday. And during that time, several people from the community uh, contacted me because they looked at our APG community calendar, which you can find by going to airlinepilotguy.com slash calendar. And don't forget, uh, the apps are going away, so you need to make sure that you get that uh, that uh, website, our website, airlinepilotguy.com. Uh, kind of uh, what we call what would we call that applicationized <laughs> by uh, doing the procedure to put Appa, it on appify it appify ooh i like that appify uh, you know i should probably put some directions somewhere on how to do that but uh, anywho yeah, um, it to like the top, we can pin it to the top of the twitter page or yeah, uh, yeah. put it on uh, so they looked at the calendar and saw that i was going to be in chicago for a, a, a good period of time and they said hey what do you think maybe a meetup and i thought yeah let's do a meetup so we met on Tuesday, midday, and I had my handy-dandy recorder with me, and I 
made this recording. So let's take a listen. Doing another meetup here in Chicago at Miller's Pub on Wabash and Adams in the, what would you call this area of Chicago? The South Loop or something like that? Yeah, whatever that means. And so here we are. Uh, several people have gotten together here today on uh, Tuesday, the 1st of October. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to hand the microphone to each participant in the APG Meetup show. And they're going to tell you their name and a little bit about themselves. So we're going to start with Jeff over here, right to my left. Jeff Gebhardt is the name here from Chicago. I'm born and raised. I do work for a major airline. Not really based in Chicago, but we have a pretty large base here in Chicago. Been with them for about 30 years now. And uh, just enjoy working with them, traveling the world as uh, a non-rev traveler would. And uh, one of my hobbies, uh, aside from working at the airline, is aviation spotting. So I can contribute that. So I just enjoy listening to the podcast and everything that you guys have to offer. That's it. And we'll now hand it off to... Hi, I'm Kylie Barron. I am sort of new in the aviation world. I don't even know where to start, really. So I have always been sort of timid about flying, um, but for some reason I actually have flown a lot uh, for somebody who doesn't like it. Um, and so I recently decided, I guess about, uh, it seems recent, but it was probably a year and a half ago that it, you know, I was just going to get over this and learn everything I possibly could about aviation and flying and what it's like. So I came across the APG podcast and I started listening to you guys and everything that you've been saying. And then as I was listening, listening and listening, months go by and I'm thinking, man, this is kind of actually really cool. You know, and I kept listening, kept listening, and then finally I said, ugh, I got to do this. I got to do this. And so I decided to uh, sign up for a, uh, a lesson, and so I went through that, and uh, that was even, I, I've, <laughs> I was just telling uh, Jeff about this, I, I got finished with that lesson, I was like, I'm never doing that again, that was awful. Um, <laughs> however, um, kept listening to everybody, um, the APG community talk about just how much they loved flying and all their great experiences, and so... Decided to give it another shot, and uh, after that, I've been hooked ever since. So um, I now have just a few hours under my belt, but I'm excited to uh, learn more about it, and I'm excited to be part of uh, the community. Hi, I'm Gary Cunahan. I've been an APG listener for many years. I've met Jeff several times, and it's always been a good experience. Um, my, my background in aviation is... Uh, uh, I've been a military helicopter pilot for many years, flying both active duty in Vietnam and then with the uh, Army National Guard after that. Uh, my other career has been as a police officer, and I've done some in aviation in that, but mostly on the road. Uh, I can't think of a whole lot else to say here, but Kylie's story is really neat, and she's really an incredible person. And I'll pass it on to the next one here. Hello, APG crew. So glad to be joining everyone for another meetup. Anytime I have the opportunity to get together with Jeff, Dana, or any other members of the APG crew, I jump at the opportunity. I'm joining the crew from Texas, so I guess I get the award for longest distance traveled for this meetup. Uh, I happened to be in town for, uh, for business and saw that Jeff was uh, in town on an overnight, so reached out to him and so glad that he was gracious enough to let me join him. 
Uh, my background in aviation, I'm a general aviation pilot, and I was also a flight attendant for a uh, uh, Delta Connection carrier. So uh, one wonderful conversations going around the table. I'm loving all of the stories. And uh, once again, another great meetup. And Jeff, I would be remiss if I didn't do a shout out to one of the guys, a uh, fellow friend and colleague that works with me, Scott. So Scott did want to be here, so I just want to give a shout out to Scott. Shout out to Scott. Yay. Who's Scott? <laughs> He's in, uh, one of the guys that's in the tower with me there at America or at, uh, at Ajax. Ajax. Shout out to Scott in the tower. You're awesome. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so we're having a great time here. Uh, in the mid-afternoon on a Tuesday, and uh, yeah, lots of great conversation here. And if you ever have a chance to meet up with any of the APG crew, or you know what? It doesn't even have to involve the APG crew. If you're out there and you listen to the APG and you're an aviation geek and you want to get together with people, do it because it's a lot of fun. So with that, let's uh, send it back to Jeff in the studio. Well, thank you, Jeff. Sounds like you guys had a great time. And yes, David Ogden, I'm not going to invite him anymore. I'm not going to allow him to be part of any more podcasts because his voice is just uh, so awesome. Great yeah, radio voice. Yeah, it shows the rest of us up. So, <clears throat> yeah, it really does. That's the end of that. Yeah. As long, well, you know what? As long as he doesn't talk when we do a recording. Yeah, he can just sit there and be quiet. Right. Yeah, but we all know he's got a great voice. So <laughs> it would just put me off him just yeah. looking at us. <laughs> you know... I think all of those people had great voices, by the way. Yes, uh, Steph? Oh, no, I was just going to second his comment about, um, was it Kylie? Kylie, yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. great story there. Like, Yeah. and I love that someone listened to our show and then went out and started flying. I didn't know right. that she was going to tell that. I mean, I didn't know that story. Uh, mm -hmm. She just contacted me and said, are you going to have a, a meetup? And I said, as a matter of fact, we are. And please do come if you can. And... Uh, you know, that was when she had the microphone and she started and we were all at the table going, what? <laughs> really? That's just uh, That's stupid. gave me goosebumps. That, uh, somebody listening to our show wasn't scared away and uh, yeah. actually shut the door. I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no. OK. Um, anyway, we had a great time. Uh, I hope we can all get together again soon. And again, I think Miller's Pub is in the loop, basically in the loop. OK. I don't know. I think yeah. I was looking at something and it said something about right South there. Loop, uh, yeah. uh, Wabash and Adams. Adams. So yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's a nice restaurant. Yeah, it is. Um, well, you know, I, um, when they, when Jeff, I think was uh, the one that suggested the, um, the place, the Miller's pub and Miller's mm -hmm. pub and restaurant. And I was thinking in my head popped up Miller's ale house, which is a chain that's all over the country. Ah. And I'm thinking, no, that's and, not really great, but uh, this is much better than Miller's Ale House. It's much, yes, it's very nice. Yeah, very nice. We had a great time. So I love Chicago anyway, and uh, yeah, it was a good, a good visit. So again, if you uh, want to uh, take part in one of these meetups, you need to do a few things. At the very least, look at the calendar every now and then. Again, it's on our website, and it's also on Slack. So if you're wanting to join that group. Hillel will tell us about that at the end of the show. And what else? How else? Oh, follow us on uh, the social meds, the social meds. But we're again going to talk about how you can do that at the end of the show. So uh, that's all I had. I'm going to be leaving tomorrow morning flying up to, uh, I'm going to be like, sort of like Steph, but not quite. 
nobody can compete with her. I'm going to just fly from Atlanta to Baltimore. And, uh, you know, William Cool, who is now mm-hmm. Captain, Captain Cool, cool. Uh, he's having a party, kind of an aviation-themed party. And uh, I missed the one that they had last year. His wife, uh, he and his wife, Susie, uh, did a party as well. So I was bound and determined that I was going to make this one. And so I'm flying up there, going to attend the party tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow evening, and then back on Sunday. So just a quick trip up to the Baltimore area. And it looks like I'm I'm going to see Hillel. Just noticed that he was on the uh, list of people that are going to attend. So he. I am over two parties now, so. Please send my regards. Yeah, well, we've noticed. It's it's something that we've made note of. Okay. Um, and with that, I can't think of anything else, so I'm going to go ahead and hit this button right here. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community coffee and tea and the java and me a cup a cup a cup a cup a cup all right the coffee fund is your way to support the show financially and a couple different ways to do that the first is the coffee fund classic method and it's basically a a paypal donation page where you can contribute to the show either a one-time contribution or a recurring contribution. Both of ours today are recurring from Alistair Kerr and Randolph Ackerman. The other way to do it is to become a patron of our show via patreon.com. Again, details about that on the website. Uh, Since the last episode, we don't have any new producers, so that's okay. We've got a great group of people over there already. Uh, our patrons, who are um, setting aside a certain amount per episode, and uh, they can specify a maximum amount. So if we go crazy and do 30 shows in a month, you don't, you know, get bankrupt, uh, bankrupted. Anyway, it won't make you go broke. And let's see. Again, if you want to learn how to become part of this great group of people, head over to airlinepilotguy.com/coffee. You'll be glad you did. We will too. Stand by for We start the news segment with some very, very sad news. Um, Multiple dead after a World War II Boeing B-17 plane crashes and erupts into flames at the Bradley International Airport uh, between Hartford, Connecticut and Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, You'll remember my recollection on the last episode of the amazing day that I spent with main man Micah and Max Flight at the Auburn-Lewiston Airport, where the World War II vintage planes of the Collings Foundation were assembled. Among them, B-24, B-25, P-40, P-51, was the venerable B-17 Flying Fortress. One of the first experiences we were treated to was talking to a 97-year-old 
tail gunner, Dick Hammond. Uh, he was a tail gunner on the B-17 during the war. And later, we got a chance to climb aboard the B-17. It was a G model, the 909, crawling around the very tight spaces inside the historical icon. The climax of the experience for me was the very candid discussion we had with its pilot, Mac McCauley. Here's a little snippet from that. Have you flown in the Huey? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. It's... Is it as much fun as it looks like? No. No. <laughs> you like the B-17 better, well, huh? I like, yeah, I like things with wings. <laughs> what's, what's your aviation background? How did you come to... I, just, uh... I, I, I grew up on an airport. Yeah? yeah? I've been flying old junk ever since I was a little kid. And yeah, I yeah. just, when I retired, I thought, well, hey, met these guys at an air show one time years, about 21 years ago, and here I am. Still here. Still did you here. fly uh, professionally, commercially, or anything? No, uh, not, yeah. not, not the airlines or anything like that. Yeah, no. good, good. So, so living proof that you don't have to be an airline pilot who's standing behind you right now, actually, Captain Jeff, um, in order to end up flying a B-17. See, Jeff, there is uh, hope for uh, yeah, after the airline. Yeah, no, like our insurance, they, won't even, they, won't, they don't want us having airline guides because they don't fly anymore. <laughs> oh, I do. The airplane that I fly, we still fly. Yeah, so for now. Dog. Um, McDonnell Douglas, MD-88, MD-90. Oh, yeah. That's a good yeah. airplane. Yeah. Would you, like to, would you like to fly a B-17 uh, someday? I would love to fly a B-17 someday. Yeah, well, maybe yeah. you should volunteer for the uh, Collings Foundation or something of that sort. Yeah, I might just have to do that sometime. You must, it must be a blast for you to, uh, to fly this aircraft. Yeah, I fly this thing every day. So that was the, uh, the head um, chief pilot or whatever you want to call for the B-17 for the Collings Foundation. And sadly, Mac was in command of the bomber when it crashed two days ago at Bradley International. He was one of the seven fatalities. I can still see his face, his smile forever etched in my mind. So rest in peace, Mac. It was a pleasure meeting you, only for a very short time. Anyway. Um, I'm, I was just going to say, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to even put into words how sad and, and tragic that is, but I'm so glad that you and Max and Micah had the chance to chat with him and preserve some of that, you know, before all this happened. I am too. I am too. Um, it was a, a real a real treat for all of us to get uh, get a chance to talk to him. And uh, he had, a, from what I could tell, he had a very good sense of humor, great sense of humor, actually. Yeah, sounds like a, sounds like a great guy. Yeah, and... Uh, Anyway, uh, the aircraft um, at so they were doing the same thing when we went up to Auburn Lewiston. Uh, they they took the show over the you know it's part of their Wings of Freedom tour 2019, and they were at Bradley. And the aircraft um, had some people on board that were uh, paying for getting a ride on the airplane. I think there were a, two or three a handful of people that were getting free rides as a kind of a promotion and publicity. Uh, the aircraft had received clearance for departure on runway 6 at 9.45 local time in the morning. After takeoff, the aircraft made a right-hand turn at 9.50. The aircraft contacted Bradley Tower, reported an engine 4 problem, and asked permission to land on runway 6, and that was approved. Um, a Connecticut Airport Authority Executive Director, Kevin Dillon, said, We observed that the aircraft was not gaining altitude. There were 13 people on board the Boeing uh, B-17, two pilots, flight engineer and crew chief, and 10 passengers. Another person on the ground was injured when the plane slid off the runway and slammed into a building used to house the airport's de-icing equipment. One of the injured, who survived, 
as a member of the Connecticut Air National Guard, a represent uh, rep for the service. I do believe that this was the gentleman that several of the news reports have pointed to that actually was a hero, was able to open up one of the escape hatches on uh, in the airplane and, and help save uh, the, the folks that did not perish in this accident. And it's just truly sad. Um, many different news agencies reporting on it, lots of different pictures, and it just uh, it's just so heartbreaking to see the photos. It's always heartbreaking that anytime we talk about a crash on the show and there's a loss of life, but when you have a personal connection to it, that's when it kind of makes it real. Yeah. Well, there's going to be thousands of people around the States that know Mac McCauley and know the crew and have looked at the aircraft. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, it's just a treasure uh, that um, sadly has been more or less destroyed. Uh, perhaps they'll bring, be able to bring the aircraft back to life. It will take a lot of work, but of course, the crew and the passengers, the loss of life is uh, an absolute double tragedy. So, yeah. uh, l- luckily, these sort of things amongst uh, these vintage aircraft uh, are rare. It's not like he was doing a display, uh, in which case you say, well, uh, actually in display flying, there is quite a high level of risk. This was something relatively benign, and it sounds like a technical fault. Um, so, uh, you know, just my heart goes out to everyone involved. And uh, I, I truly hope that, uh, you know, well, we can look back on this uh, in years to come and just with fond memories of uh, a wonderful crew, wonderful airplane. Yes. Yeah, and I hope it doesn't discourage the, um, the, the support of and fervor for these kind of vintage aircraft rides. You know, there's... You know, a lot of people out there in the community would say, you know, the, that airplane doesn't have any business being, fl- you know, flown. And we've had this discussion on the show before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think all of us kind of, you know, believe that the the experience that you have with having a real living airplane like that flying and getting a ride on it is worth the small amount of risk that you may take. So. Oh, absolutely. I'd hate for these aircraft to try to be brought up to some kind of modern safety standards. It just doesn't work. The whole point is that they are uh, flying museums. They're living replicas of uh, the, ra- the aircraft that were flown uh, in you know, just amazing conditions in the Second World War and after. Um, so, you know, I, I'm quite right. I think that there is an, a slightly raised element of risk when you're flying an aircraft at that age and that technology, but I th- think that is per- a perfectly acceptable risk. And as long as everyone knows it when they climb on board, I think there will never be any shortage of people that would love to fly on uh, an aircraft like that. Yep. Absolutely. Okay, well, let's move on to this next item. We talked about this on an earlier episode. I believe it was December of last year when uh, a Marine Corps KC-130, um, an an air refueling version of the 130 of the Marine Corps, was out over the, uh, what was it, the Chinese Sea or the Japanese Sea? I'm not sure exactly where they were, Um, but somewhere off the Japanese coast. Yeah, they were just off the coast of Japan. And uh, they were doing some uh, night training mission. And an F-A-18, I guess it was a, a flight of two F-18s were out there practicing night air refueling. And there was an incident, an accident, where the one of the F-18s took out the, uh, the Marine Corps KC-130. Uh, by the way, there were the F-A-18s were also Marine Corps. Um, and uh, I'm not going to read some of the... Um, uh, I guess what would you call it the uh, the narrative from some of the folks that were inside the uh, 
the MS, uh, the KC-130 are talking about, you know, uh, what the F-18s were doing out there. Uh, but it turns out that an inexperienced pilot unqualified for the night air-to-air refueling and a weapon system officer uh, later found to have had unauthorized Ambien and over-the-counter cold medicine, medicine in his system had just slammed their F-A-18 into the back of a KC-130 during a night air refueling training exercise. Uh, Profane 1-1, the call sign of the second F-A-18 participating in the exercise, would report watching Sumo, the uh, the 130 Sumo 41 catch fire and fly nose down into the clouds. Lieutenant Colonel Kevin Herman, 38, Major James Brophy, 36, Staff Sergeant Maximo Alexander Flores, 27, Corporal William C. Ross, 21, and Corporal Daniel E. Baker, 21, crew members of the KC 130J assigned to Marine Aerial Refueler Squad Transport Squadron 152 died in the tragic collision. Captain Jamar um, F. Rezolard, I'm not sure that's the way you pronounce his name or not, 28 years old, the pilot of the crashed FA 18 assigned to Marine All Weather Fighter Attack Squadron 242, also perished in the crash. His weapon systems officer was the lone survivor of the mid air collision. Um, let's see, the lone survivor in the tragic mid-air collision has since been released from the hospital, and Corps officials have not released the Marine's name. And so there's a big investigation, of course, on this, and it turns out that uh, they found some uh, deficiencies, safety deficiencies, in uh, the squadron, uh, and uh, the uh, commander of VMFA-242, Lieutenant Colonel James Compton, was fired from his position in April before the uh, uh, investigation concluded due to loss of trust and confidence. And the Corps uh, also fired the VMFA 242's executive, executive officer, ops officer, and the aviation safety officer. So <laughs> took out basically the, the whole top office holders in the, uh, in the squadron. Uh, turns out... Yeah, I mean, you wonder... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Mm. No, that's what I was just thinking when you, know, you read through the top of this that they were letting unqualified pilots do these types of training missions. That's the, yeah, that's not well, good at I, all. I think to a certain extent he was, sh- should have been requalifying, uh, but uh, I don't oh, think he'd done, okay. made sufficient contacts no. uh, for, to call himself qualified. And th- I mean, this was my worst nightmare when it comes to this type of accident, that there would be found that errors had been made in uh, command control authorization training uh, because that makes this an entirely avoidable accident and which makes it doubly tragic yes yep. uh, the pilot of the uh, fa-18 that that collided with the 130 uh, resolard um, and his instructor had also incorrectly logged in the training and readiness system that he was qualified for night system air-to-air refueling despite only having completed one of six required night contacts with the fuel basket of a tanker. So there was a, um, I don't know if it was purposeful or not, but there was an an inaccuracy. He was not qualified. And also uh, he had flown 47 hours fewer than the 60 hours required by the Corps aviation training and readiness logging system. So, you know, he wasn't out there flying as much as she should have. And he frankly shouldn't have been on this uh, mission. No, and sadly, he wasn't 
didn't qualify very well, very high in his class. Uh, so he wasn't perhaps the most gifted pilot. Right. So when you combine all these factors together, it was just waiting to happen. And then, of course, this flight leader uh, called him to perform an, a non-standard formation move, which in a night environment with his level of experience and currency was uh, probably a very unwise thing. Uh, and he became disoriented, I suspect, during that maneuver, uh, way too close to the tanker to perform it, and then uh, and then clobbered it. So he just, uh, I just think, oh, no, come on, guys, get a grip. Uh, and it really it upsets me enormously when I, re when I read this. Yeah, me too. Um, I knew that you would be upset by it um, based on your military flying experience, uh, Nick. And, uh, yeah, it just looked to me like, I don't know if they were being egged on by the tanker crew to do something fancy or what, but, uh, apparently, um, they did something non-standard, uh, not briefed. And as you said, Nick, uh, he became, um, a little, um, disoriented. disoriented. Yeah. And, uh, actually pulled into the tanker when he should have, uh, pushed the other direction. So very sad. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it, it is It is hard doing night formation, doing formation in cloud uh, when your sensors are telling you one thing and your flight instruments and the guy in the back who should be coaching you to do something else and not to follow your instincts and to actually make sure that you are still orientated on your instruments and doing the right thing, moving the right directions and keeping a good visual lookout to ensure that you've got fore and aft separation as well as vertical separation from the tanker when you're maneuvering. Uh, you know, it's it's all part and parcel of uh, training, and we all become adept at it a while after a while. But until you are, you have to be very, very careful. So uh, I think it's just ah, very, very sad, and the loss of life on the tanker crew is inexcusable. Yeah, that's one. It's a real shame. Uh, the oh, and the other thing it mentioned, which I think was just amazing to me, is that the um, weapon systems officer in the backseat of the FA eighteen. Uh, did not have an exposure or anti-exposure or whatever you call those suits. Um, well, that's not the right term. Um, we used to call it a goon suit. Uh -huh. I think you guys call it a poopy suit or something. Yeah, something I'm, like that. And it's, in, a, it's a rubber suit. Yeah. It wasn't required for this because I think the water temperature has to be below 54 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And on this occasion, it was 68. But 68 is not a, is not bath water. <laughs> it's, that's still yeah, quite cold water. And he was um, floating in the water for nine hours before he was picked up by a Japanese rescue uh, helicopter. Yeah, um, I wonder if he'd managed to get in his dinghy uh, or whether he was just literally, because if, if he was nine hours just on his life preserver, I would have thought he would have died. Yeah. Uh, but uh, if he got into his dinghy, yeah, uh, even so, that it's damn cold. Yeah, yeah. And not pleasant. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, moving on. Um, you know, it's a good thing. You know, we've, we've been hearing a lot about the 737 and the MCAS whole debacle. And it's a good thing that nothing else is going wrong with the 737. <laughs> Um, anything, anything that has got the 737 <laughs> attached to it, the newspapers are just going to have a yeah. field day with it at the moment. And I feel, I feel really sorry for anyone working at Boeing right now because they must be just feeling like they're getting hit from every quarter. Pulling their hair out. Uh, yep, absolutely. Not another oh. thing. Well, yeah, exactly. Boeing engineers and safety ins investigators are scrambling to find out how many Boeing 737 next generation NGs 
have uh, cracked pickle forks. I've never heard of a pickle fork until I've heard about this issue. Oh, uh, I eat my pickles with one. Well, I do have you? a couple of those you have upstairs. A fork for your pickles? <laughs> yes. Like going to the cutlery. <laughs> okay, well, I have heard yeah. of that, I, I must say, but uh, not uh, in relation to an airplane fuselage and the airplane wing. It's the part that helps attach a plane's fuselage to its wing structure. It helps manage the stress, torque, and aerodynamic forces that bend the connection between the wings and the body of the jet. You know, we've all seen, ridden as passengers and looked out the window, and you can see the wings kind of bending up and down, and some people kind of get freaked out by that because... Um, they think that they shouldn't do that, but they are designed to do that. Anyway, um, engineers designed the pickle forks to last a lifetime, at least 100 bottles of pickles. No, wait a minute. That's the wrong. Uh, <laughs> more than uh, 90,000 landings and takeoffs, a term known as flight cycles in the aviation industry. And the uh, the planes that they found some cracks on in the pickle fork have only logged about 35,000. So just over a third of what... It was supposed to be able to withstand, and uh, a retired Boeing engineer who was asked to remain anonymous tells us it's unusual to have a crack in the pickle fork. It's not designed to crack that way at all, period. So uh, they said they were happy that they found this so early in the plane service, and uh, inspections are, now I know that Acme, um, I was reading on our ops page, the, I didn't actually read the article, but it had a little blurb about what Acme is doing and how they're going to... Uh, do the inspections without uh, suffering any service uh, outages of the airplane. So, uh, anyway. Well, I'm, I'm glad they spotted it. So, mm -hmm. at least they can do the inspections. And I gather the inspections aren't too complicated. I don't know how easy it is to get at this and uh, strengthen or repair it. Yeah. That's, I think that's going to be the problem. If that is. As, yeah. As I imagine, it's uh, deep within the, uh, uh, the structure of the aircraft, then it ain't going to be easy. No, I wouldn't imagine it would be. They'd have to probably take them out of service for quite a while to, to fix the ones that are actually need of fixing. Mm. Okay, well, at least uh, we know that um, the uh, that 737 is being uh, watched very, very carefully uh, because of all the issues with the uh, the MAX. So, and, and by the way, um, it's uh, this article here from the, uh, I believe, the Seattle Times or Como News, K-O-M-O News.com, said that this issue does not affect any 737 MAX airplanes or the P-8 Poseidon, which is the Navy's uh, submarine uh, mission warfare, uh, anti-war, whatever it is. What do, you, what do you call that? They have a submarine? <laughs> yeah, well, submarine let me try that again. <laughs> the Navy's anti-submarine... Anti Warfare Maritime patrol mission. Aircraft. Yeah, it's like what the P three. You think this is seven thirty seven just under the surface of the water with the tail sticking out like a shark? It's a replacement for the P three. Leave me alone. <laughs> Darn it! I knew I shouldn't have read that. <laughs> oh well. Yeah, but basically, you were getting the point you were getting at. Just the next generation seven thirty seven. Exactly. Not not including the Max or the Poseidon. Um, uh, there's another uh, part of this that says that um, a crack like this is similar to what you see in a crack in a coffee pot, coffee pot, coffee cup handle. The retired engineer tells us you can likely continue using the cup several more times, but there's always a risk that the handle will break off and hot coffee will wind up in your lap. Well, we don't want the handles of these airplanes breaking off. No. Uh, in other words, wings. No. Yeah. yeah. 
That would not I, you be know, a good I, I have to look up and see what, I wonder if I can find pictures of what this pickled fork looks like. So I'm just imagining like a, a turkey wishbone. Yeah. Basically, or, you know. That's not a good. I don't know why. Metaphor. Probably not. Because those break not really easily, don't they? <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. And you're supposed to be so able to make a wish uh, yeah. if you like, have one that breaks. My when I like read the name of the thing and the problem they're having with it, I was like, oh, that sounds like. Uh, well, Nick, when the, when the pickle fork breaks, your wish at that moment is that I wish I had a parachute. <laughs> okay. Ba-doom, bam. Yeah. yeah. Well, Steph is going to be flying around with her parachute with her, I think, from now. Yeah, just all the time. <laughs> Speaking of parachutes, did you see the uh, video, Steph, of the two hang glider parachute guys that were? Uh, I did see that. Oh my gosh! And they're insane. Yeah. That's just not. That was crazy. <laughs> Yeah, bad, bad boys. we got a couple of them here in this news item. The first, Michael Bisgrove. And by the way, um, if you watch the video, you will see Captain Nick doing something very naughty. <laughs> this is what this gentleman did, or I, I use that term very HR loosely. has taken notes and will be <laughs> okay. issuing appropriate Because I was, I was kind of momentarily blinded. I don't know about you. Uh, anyway. No, my, my screen on this, my mobile studio here is so tiny, there's no chance. <laughs> Didn't notice it. Any, any harm. Anyway, he uh, was shining a laser beam into the cockpit of a 737, and uh, it was a TUI, or do you call it TUI or TUI? TUI? Uh, I think TUI is the okay. general nickname. Uh, um, dazzling the pilot. Ooh, dazzling. And crew as they came into land at Cardiff Airport in April 2018. When a police helicopter searched for him, he shined the laser into the eyes of the three-man helicopter crew, putting their lives at risk. So he's a smart uh, yeah, No, guy. no, he's not. Uh, he was jailed for th- or given a sentence of 32 months. Yay, finally, some, some powerful uh, punishment for this stupid act. And uh, let's see. We also have another one. Um, uh, let's see. Or is this still part of the same story? Yeah. Um, let me continue with this one then. Uh, Captain Robin Small was flying the Boeing 737 when a laser beam shined through the front window of the cockpit. The dazzling light caused Captain Small and his crew difficulty when it shined into the cockpit for about a minute. And it could have caused a catastrophe, they say. And it was a it was just a 15-centimeter long laser pin with a zoom and 5-kilometer range, only costing 5 pounds. Wow. Hmm. Seems like they'd be more expensive than that. It doesn't really matter how much it costs. No, it doesn't. Uh, yeah. I mean, a bullet costs very little. You can do an awful lot of damage with one. True. That is very true. Yeah. No, some of them, I mean, they really don't cost very much. So. Hmm. Well, um, you also remember we talked about this, um, uh, an episode of more stupidity. Uh, this one happened in Melbourne, uh, Australia in October of 2016, and Paul Sant, a former baggage handler, made uh, hoax calls to air traffic control and aircraft. Um, They heard from him, uh, 19 years old at the time, uh, had behavioral issues from the age of three, came from a dysfunctional family, and had been living in state-run residential care since the age of 14. He also has Asperger's syndrome. 
Uh, he had previously pleaded guilty to three charges, endangering the safety of an aircraft in flight, transmitting a false mayday call, knowing it was likely to endanger the safety of another person, and interfering with radio communications. Uh, Mr. Sant had lost his job at Virgin Australia as a baggage handler, but had continued to put on his uniform and pretend to go to work. I know a lot of people that put on uniforms and pretend to go to work, too. Um, anyway, he made a series of uh, bogus calls in October of 2016. Uh, he instructed VA-1371 uh, to abort a takeoff. It was actually a landing at approximately 1547 um, on the 25th of October, air traffic control alerted the crew it was a hoax and the flight landed as normal. A go-around call was made to an, another aircraft and uh, ATC immediately alerted the crew that that was also a hoax. And several of these listed happened that way, but there was one that I guess ATC didn't have a chance to tell the crew that it was a hoax and they actually executed a go-around. And as a result, the aircraft breached the three nautical mile separation zone between aircraft coming within 1.8 nautical miles of, uh, was it JQ? Is that Jet Jet Airways or something like that? I'm not sure. JQ 740. They were, they were preparing to take off. The prosecutor told the court the similarity of the Virgin and Jetstar. Oh, Jetstar. There we go. Call signs caused extra confusion. So in the courtroom, the judge noted his Asperger's didn't reduce his moral culpability. The judge also told him his actions were dangerous and that uh, could have had terrifying, perhaps fatal consequences. Such behavior is totally unac unacceptable. You may have been young. You may have thought it was just funny, uh, just silly, but the potential for real, serious, and significant harm uh, way beyond what you might have contemplated was very real. And the seriousness of the offending must be marked by the imposition of a term of imprisonment. So he sentenced Mr. Sant to two years in prison, imprisonment, but released him on recognizance release order. So in other words, he, I guess he doesn't have to actually go to jail for two years. Uh, he's just going to be, I guess, what we'd call here in the States on probation, I guess. Yeah, um, well, we have a similar thing. If, if as long as you keep your nose clean, uh, then that goes away mm -hmm. but if you do anything uh, in that period then you go into jail and serve your full sentence so at least two instances positive instances of people you know being stupid out there getting punished for it so that's good to hear yeah it's nice that we're finding out about these because hopefully that will act as a great deterrent for anyone who's thinking uh, that it would be a good jape to do something similar yeah i hope that it's widely reported so that people actually pay attention to it. Ah, oh, did you see this? I was, uh, you know, I mentioned I was at, uh, in yeah. Chicago at uh, Chicago O'Hare International Airport. Oh, One of I, Steph's... I didn't see it in person. I saw the video. Well, so, um, <laughs> the yeah, there was a, a video, um, on online and all the social meds and stuff. And you know, this is an audio program, so I really can't show you the video, although we'll have a link to it in the show notes, but let me just play a little bit of the audio of this and you can hear what's going on. So this uh, beverage cart is going around and around, and one of the people on the ground finds a tow bar. Or, or, uh, ooh, there we go. Knocked it over. I wish I had made that sound effect a little bit longer because I needed to say more. But you get the yeah. idea. Um, that wasn't actually the sound from – although if you look at – just think of that when you're watching the video. <laughs> 
a a motorized baggage uh, no not baggage a beverage cart I've never seen one of these things before but apparently uh, a case of, um, of of water bottles somehow got bumped off the seat and fell down onto the floor and um, pushed or engaged the uh, accelerator of the thing and I guess it wasn't chalked or if it was it jumped the chalks and it just starts going around in circles in reverse on the, on the ramp and somebody in the uh, terminal is taking a video of this and yeah, you can, it was dispensing drinks to everybody and it keeps and it's doing its circles you know in reverse round and round and everybody's just kind of standing looking like what 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 are we going to do how yeah. are we going to you could tell it was like you could all, almost see the little thought bubbles like i'm going to jump in somehow and yeah, stop this thing yeah they were, they were, like every time it came around they were kind of like yeah, go, no, that's not going to work. I'm going to die if I do that. But you could tell that the circles were getting closer and closer to this embryo. It was moving, you know. Mm-hmm. And I guess the guy that was a hero in this, his name is um, Jorge Manalang, or George. I guess I'm, I'd say Jorge probably, right? J-O-R-G-E. Um, he, uh, I think he was toward the back of this Embraer uh, aircraft, and he comes running up, and then he goes... I have a solution, and he, I don't know if he said that out loud, uh, but he got on the uh, little um, electric um, tug thing, not a regular size tug, but almost like a like a floor jack, it looks like. It just picks up the nose wheel of the uh, airplane, and he just kind of drives it right over there, right in the perfect place to uh, stop the, uh, the motorized beverage cart from doing any harm. And, yeah, he uh, flipped it neatly onto its back like, Turning a tortoise upside down. <laughs> exactly. It just sat there waving its wheels in the air. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it still hasn't stopped. Just, yeah, it's just like. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, good job. Yeah. Yeah, great job. Because if that had whacked into the aircraft, there would have been a lot of damage. Oh, yeah. Very expensive. Yeah. Oh, very, very. Yes. Should should mention the uh, airline Envoy, uh, an American Airlines uh, feeder airline. Subsidiary. Oh. Subsidiary, yes. And uh, so uh, they are, and he's a ramp instructor, and uh, he instructed everybody that day what to do in a situation like that. Uh, exactly. Not that it's going to happen again anytime soon, but uh, just in case. And uh, the uh, airline's very proud of him and will reward him in some way. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that was funny. Yes, they'll probably give him a case of drinks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can have all of those beverages that spilled out onto the ramp. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What a reward. No, no. Something, something much nicer, no <laughs> doubt. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping so. Hope he gets a nice bonus, maybe. Got, like, get half the money that he saved the airline from having to spend on Ooh. fixing that. Ooh. That would be a lot of money. That would be, that would be a healthy <laughs> bonus, definitely. That would. Speaking of videos, uh, here's another video. And wow, according to uh, what I was reading here, it looks like the um, it shows... A, an engine on a wing, the left engine on a United Airlines. Uh, is this another 737? <laughs> um, oh, no. I'm not sure what, um, it doesn't say what type, um, but it's got to be a 737, obviously. Uh, flight United Flight 293. And here it says that uh, the terrifying video um, shows the, um, uh, the airplane appearing to violently, or the engine appearing to violently shake up and down. While the vehicle flies through the sky, well, no, it was not the engine that was uh, violently shaking up and down, but it was the, the uh, cowling, the the engine cover on the uh, outside of the engine. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So um, it is an engine malfunction because uh, that, uh, you know, the cowling is part of the uh, proper functioning of an engine. And so they had to return to uh, Denver. And uh, anyway, so there's a, a pretty good, kind of blurry video, the one that I have anyway, of this. Um, and vertical. Yeah, well, we're used to that now. Stuff. Stuff. <laughs> That's normal. <laughs> I'm going to start, you know, just putting my big screen TVs in a vertical orientation. Or yeah. so Not a good idea. Yep. <laughs> I'm just going to, I've given up. <laughs> I don't think Nev has yet, but uh, I think no, I have. No, you will fight till the end on that one. Uh, Liz tells us it was a 737-800. There you go. Oh, there you go. Probably has a cracked pickle fork, too. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, <laughs> Sure, it does now after that cowling is flapping around. Oh, yeah. Right. All that right. vibrating. Yeah. yeah. I, so I'm wondering if this is one of those instances where they were doing some work on the engine and somebody just missed the fact that everything wasn't latched. Like, who knows? I don't know. Uh, it's quite likely. Yeah. Uh, we went through a, a bunch of those on the Airbus recently, uh, yep. well, a year or two ago. Uh, so, uh, you know, now it's checked every time in the walkaround and even has to be filled into the tech lock if you've done engine work confirm the latches are closed and that's the only way to make sure that these things are done i mean that's yeah. a pretty straightforward thing uh, if you open your bonnet on your car you close it otherwise it's likely to get very noisy when you drive down the road <laughs> it's yes. hard to see where you're going now the bonnet is the one that's in front where the engine is uh yes yeah, so, okay. so we call the, the hood, uh, hood. Yeah, so it can also like obstruct your vision as well. That's not a lot yeah, of fun exactly. when you're driving it's quickly hard down. To see through one of those. <laughs> yes, I had that happen to a girl I knew in, uh, in school. Did she survive? Oh. Yeah. Did, she was, was there any terrifying was, video from it? No, oh. and if there was, I'm sure it would have been in vertical video mode. But, <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, it, was before the, it was actually probably before cell phone cameras were uh, really. But anyway, no, back okay. in the good old days. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, and uh, finally in our news folder, um, so we talked about the, we've talked and talked and talked about the uh, 737 MCAS, and um, we mentioned, I believe, that uh, Steph was going to be meeting with uh, Colonel Jeff, as she told us in the intro, and uh, I, I guess we said we should ask him about this, and he, uh, he um obliged and recorded some audio and so let's hear from jeff and what he has to say about this whole thing hello there apg colonel falmouth here sending feedback about episode 393 and the discussion that nick and jeff had about 737 mcas training and things like that let me preface this with some mcas issues uh, the mcas cannot be cannot engage unless the Autopilot is turned off, the autopilot not on, and the flaps are fully retracted. So the MCAS will not operate if the flaps are down or if the autopilot is on. It was designed to recover the airplane from a very narrow, tiny portion of the flight envelope to counteract the pitch-up moment of the new engines, which are further forward and much larger and more powerful than the previous versions of the engine in a low-speed environment. Uh, some other things that were brought up is that uh, in both instances, the crews at Lion Air and Ethiopian had a stick shaker and the overspeed warning going on at the same time. Yes, it's confusing. You, The airplane's telling you you're about to stall at the same time it's telling you you're going way too fast. It kind of sounds like Air France 447, but for a different reason. 
Neither one of those can be silenced. Neither one of those can be stopped unless you get out of that situation, which these guys would not be able to do with the failures that they had. Um, the problem with losing an AOA vein or an indicator on the 737 is the AOA feeds directly into our air data computer, which on the 737 is much more complicated than a simple air data computer because it takes inputs from a lot of other sources, and it is known as an Adaroo. I've had one of these fail. It gave me inaccurate airspeed, inaccurate altitude uh, indications on one side of the cockpit, so it can be a little bit disconcerting. So that kind of causes part of the problem there, too. One of the things they alluded to before I get into the meat of this is that a political correctness issue in the reports, uh, the sources I have, which are pretty reliable, are, are indicating that that is going to be a player in how these reports are worded. Um, now, to get to the meat of this, one of the things that Nick talks about is there's just flat too many bells and whistles going off all at the same time. You have multiple failure indications all going off at the same time. Having experienced this for real on a 757, it can be disconcerting. Uh, one night we took off. Fortunately, it was the three-man crew. I was the third guy sitting in the middle. And as we took off into the clouds in icing conditions, the center screen on the 757 turned into a Christmas tree. There were more white, yellow, and blue lights on that screen than I'd ever seen before. And they weren't on very long. As soon as the weight was off the wheels, they all came on. And it was everything from uh, indications that our weight-on-wheel system no longer worked to that none of our anti-icing systems worked as we entered the icing conditions uh, after takeoff. Um, they all went away just as soon as the gear handle went up. But uh, it was quickly obvious that I could not read all those lights as quickly as I needed to because I couldn't tell you what most of them said. Uh, Nick talks about somehow we need to come up with a system that prioritizes what the pilot sees as what's the most important. I think that would take a very advanced computer system, probably at the artificial intelligence level, because no two emergencies are alike. No two failures are alike. Uh, I've had two different situations with fuel leaks in the F-15, and they were both significantly different. An engine fire on one aircraft is different than an engine fire on another aircraft of the same type. Uh, flight control malfunctions are different pretty much every time. So it would have to be a pretty smart system. The next thing they talked about is this nebulous term airmanship. Um, I don't particularly like that term. Um, I think of it more as situational awareness, which all goes back to training, I think. Situational awareness is that idea of you know everything or you think you know everything. Uh, you're aware of everything from what's going on around you on the radio to on the instruments to outside the aircraft, whether you're flying or taxiing, whatever. It's kind of like, you know, you ever when you're driving down the highway, you ever see that person in your rearview mirror who's gaining on you in capital letters and he slams on the brakes as he gets right on your bumper then you can look back there and he checks. That's when he checks his rearview mirror to see if he can pass you. That is lack of situational awareness. Um, so that comes into play. Experience, though, is another very nebulous term. Hours do not translate into experience. Nick talks about his 4,700 hours in the, uh, in the military, and I can relate to that. It's all fighter time. The kind of flying that Nick and I did is completely different 
than the kind of flying that Jeff has done over his 25-plus long-year military commercial aviation career. Jeff's uh, background is primarily straight and level flying transport category aircraft, either with cargo or passengers on board. Aside from his stint as an instructor in the Air Force, he really hasn't done a lot of yanking and banking and flying upside down. Whereas that was Nick and I's livelihood. That's where we were making our bread and butter. Pretty much every sortie, every hour of our flight time involved multiple Gs, multiple turns, uh, single seat, or one pilot, one uh, navigator operations. And it's a different type of flying. It's a different awareness uh, of what's going on. And it's a different level of training. Nick and I had to know the airplane like the back of our hand. You had to know if this system failed, what can I still fight with or what can I get out of the fight with? We had to understand everything from a combat perspective. So that kind of training, that kind of experience, although it's a lot fewer hours than a guy flying, uh, uh, for example, my peers graduate from 20 years in the service with like 20,000 hours in a C-141. Well, I graduate from the Air Force 20 years with like 35, 4,000 hours in an F-15 or fighter time. Uh, it's not the same level of experience. I'm not less experienced because I have few hours. I'm probably at least as experienced, if not more experienced, than the guy with 20,000 hours because most of his time is straight and level with the autopilot on. So there's those situations. There's a big difference between the guy with 1,500 hours for his ATP, where a lot of that time was flying uh, survey work, versus the guy who got a lot of his 1,500 hours flying night checks, you know, bank checks at night in the Rocky Mountains. So that's training is training and experience is different. Um, the last thing I'll address is the trim wheel. And Nick is correct. The trim wheel on the 737 is not operable in all regimes of the envelope. It, there are times where, and I'm going to get to check this out for real next month when I go down the training, the trim wheel has gotten significantly smaller from the uh, Dash 100 to the uh, Max. I do not know how much smaller it is, but I, from the pictures I've seen, it's pretty, quite a bit different. And you know, Jeff even mentioned one podcast, the size of the trim wheel on the 7.2 is much bigger than it is on the 7.3. Uh, I use the 7.3 trim wheel all the time, with even with the trim on. I've never turned the trim off on the 7.3, but it's very easy to move. Uh, I use it to fine-tune the trim when I'm hand-flying because the electric trim, it it's too big a burst. No matter how you lightly you tap it, it gives you too much trim for fine-tuning the trim. So when I go down to the simulator in November, I'm going to purposely put the tr aircraft in a very nose-forward trim position, nose-down trim position, turn off the electric trim and then try to move the trim wheel to, to, at different air speeds to see how difficult that is going to be and how exactly we're going to do that and if uh, this presents itself to me in, in the future. One of the things they used to do in the 7.3 training, this is a long time ago, and I kind of expect this to come back uh, when they ever decide to figure out what the training is going to be on the max, is we used to do what's called a roller coaster where you would get in the airplane and you'd purposely put the aircraft in a full nose down trim position. And then you would have to pull back as hard as you turn and the electric trim is turned off. You would have to pull back 
to get the nose up in the air to ease back the then now slowly let the nose fall so to ease the aerodynamic loads on the elevator so you can move the trim wheel so it was a known problem even when they first had the uh, dash 100s this is not something unique to the max or the ng it's probably more aggravated by the length of the airplane and the fact that the engines are uh, farther forward giving a more significant nose up pitch um, i thought it was a great discussion I agree with Nick. I don't think that pilot training, uh, or not pilot training, but the pilot should be thrown under the bus. They are a victim of their own training. Whether they got good training or bad training, that's other people decide, not for me. Um, I do believe that in some ways our 1,500-hour ATP requirement in the United States is ridiculous because uh, it's not the hours, like I said before. It's the experience level. And it's changed dramatically. When I was hired at the regional back in 1999, the minimum to get hired there was 250 hours of multi-engine time. Uh, within a couple years, that fell down to 250 total hours. And that was before the Colgan Air and the change in the requirements. So now it's 1,500 hours for a civilian coming right out of school to get their ATP to come to the airlines. So, again, it was a great discussion. Um... I hope this kind of fills in some of the blanks and any more questions, I will be glad to answer them. Take care and God bless. Well, thanks, Colonel Jeff, for your insight. Um, I will say something. I, I, if it's true that that mechanical trim, that backup trim system that we've been talking about, cannot um, trim the airplane in all of the normal flight regimes, then I think that the entire 737 fleet should be grounded, every single one of them. Because you have to you have to design an airplane that even shortly after takeoff, you get a runaway trim situation, you should be able to counteract it with mechanical trim, a backup. You, you, just, you cannot have a Part 121 airplane certified to fly hundreds of passengers and not be able to you know, suffer a failure of the of the stabilizer trim system. That's my opinion. Um, I'd, I'd be very, very surprised if that's really, truly the case. But now we're you know, talking about within the normally designed flight regime, not extraneous circumstances that we've talked about before. In fact, I think we just mentioned that on the last show. Um, I also um, disagree with you regarding airmanship and it being nebulous. I think that um, a high state of situational awareness is um, a part of airmanship, but it's not the same thing. In fact, let me read this quote from uh, uh, Redefining Airmanship by Tony Kern, 1996. Airmanship is the consistent use of good judgment and well-developed skills to accomplish flight objectives. This consistency is founded on a cornerstone of uncompromising flight discipline and is developed through systematic skill acquisition and proficiency. A high state of situational awareness completes the airmanship picture and is obtained through knowledge of oneself, aircraft, environment, team, and risk. And I'll add to that, he didn't say this, that airmanship and skill, flying skill and everything else, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, what we're flying, what regime we're flying, it, it all requires uh, that kind of airmanship to safely uh, fly these things. You know, you have to know the machine you're flying. Just because I flew transport category and uh, airliners for most of my 
37, 38-year career uh, doesn't mean that I don't have to know the airplane just as well as any other airplane, in my opinion. Um, and as far as the experience and flying time and that kind of thing, you know, the, at the aftermath of the Colgan 4507 and the 1500-hour rule, um, which Jeff thinks is ridiculous, uh, what I'll say about that is it's not an, a be-all, end-all solution to this big picture, but it is a factor in trying to hire the best qualified to fly passengers. All else being the same, if I had to choose a new hire pilot to fly with who has more experience in the cockpit rather than one who has little to none, I would pick the one who is better looking. Yeah. So Very good. Oh. As would we. Yeah. So, no, on uh, no. seriously no. speaking, you know, it, it – if everything else is the same, but you have more, even if it's just flying survey, uh, you know, doing the survey things, as we know, uh, several people in our community do, whatever it is, it's still time in an airplane. You know, it may not be yanking and banking, pulling five or six G's and doing, you know, advanced combat maneuvering, but it's still flying. And it's better than not having that experience, in my opinion. So that's just my... No, I, I agree with you. I think it's better than having no experience at all mm -hmm. uh, i think jeff's point is the same that i probably felt when i moved out of the military into the civil world people looked at my 4750 hours and went well you haven't got much experience well, i think uh, see i think you're wrong about that i think that most people maybe you maybe you feel that for some reason i don't know if anybody's ever actually said that to you but I think that people understand that when you come out of the military and you're flying fast jets or whatever type of airplane where you're not, you know, getting a lot of hours, you know, for the first two years of my military flying, I was flying transports and getting a lot of hours. I, I logged over a thousand hours in that two year period flying the 141. And then the next little over a thousand hours that I got was the next five years flying a T-37 trainer jet at 1.3 hours a sortie. So it, you know, I understand that it, it, somebody that has your experience or Jeff's experience, your 4,000 hours to me is like having 15, 20,000 hours. I mean, you know, you, there's a factor in there. And I, I think that I'm not the only one that believes that. I think that probably well, everybody that, that flies. You're, you're, you're also ex-military, so you had more exposure to that. I met an awful lot of civil pilots who really had no clue, absolutely no idea what you do in the military. Yeah. Uh, they had no idea of the type of flying and how much you fit into the average day. Uh, and uh, the fact that actually uh, getting over 4,000 hours or just getting 1,000 hours on type was a considerable hurdle and you'd be considered very experienced where does they, that come they up just in the, no concept what where does that come up in the conversation well, it comes i don't up remember on, ever having a jeff, conversation like this well jeff was talking about the type of flying he's yeah. saying you you 1500 hours flying straight and level is one thing uh you know 1500 hours uh doing a different kind of a job say a military flying job gives you a vastly different level of experience so yeah. i think he was comparing flying straight and level in an airliner with military flying which is often a completely different type and those two levels of experience those numbers of hours can't be compared well i think everybody understands that um well i, mean, I think you well, do i, I mean oh, no, wait, everybody okay. does. i'm sorry at this moment that people are listening to us now understand that i'm just trying oh, sure. to i'm trying to grasp where how does that come up in conversations how many hours did you get in the air force nick nobody ever asked me how many hours i 
logged in the Air Force. I'm just under, trying to understand how and how does that come up in the conversation uh, when you're flying with somebody About, and how many Well, it, for example, it comes up in the hours where you're required to do a command course, for example. I think maybe it comes up more in the, maybe not at the level that you um, are at now, Jeff, or that you uh, were at just before you retired, Nick, but perhaps... Um, or maybe it does. So, you know, um, I'm actually thinking about um, Colonel Jeff's recent situation, which I won't get into too many details about, but, you know, where you're flying perhaps with someone new to the airline um, who has plenty of experience flown at, you know, regional lots of time. Um, but you'll notice that some of those folks come in and handle the aircraft one way, have more intuition about it, have more of a sense of what's going on, and some folks handle it not as well. So is that what you're kind of getting at? How it comes up? Like, what what did you do before? How many hours did you get? Or no, I'm just, all, of all the conversations that in my own anecdotal experience uh, from being a flight engineer, a first officer, and now a captain for more than half of my career, I've never once had a conversation where I, I asked somebody or somebody volunteered how many hours they had. No, and I, I don't think that would necessarily come up. So I don't understand why you're, people yeah, you're are being defensive more. about the hours that they have and how that equates to the hours that somebody that may not have the military experience. Well, I, I just tried to indicate to get a command in my company, you needed to have a minimum of uh, 6,000 hours before you were eligible. Mm -hmm. So you could do 6,000 hours straight and level and you could start a command course or you could do 6,000 hours in the military uh, and they were considered the same. Yeah. So that doesn't happen As over one here. One example. Uh, none, I mean, that's there. We don't have any kind of requirement, uh, well, an hour requirement. That, that's for why I was making the point of it. So, yeah. in my environment, uh, that has been a quite an important. Factor. And that and that makes sense. I, I understand your perspective when it comes to that. I don't understand Colonel Jeff's because it doesn't happen <laughs> at Ajax or Acme unless I don't know. I don't. I'm just not. I'm just unsure as why that would be something that would be a sore point or. Uh, an emphasis well, on I, don't, I don't know that he was thinking it was a sore point. I think it was just, you know. Yeah. Uh, no, my personal feeling is this 1,500-hour minimum, uh, you need to get a, a license in the States. Um, there, I, there ought to be some structure to, to what you do in that 1,500 hours. Sure. So I think personally that if you're going to expect someone to fly 1,500 hours, they need to do something that improves their ability as a pilot uh, and just being in the air doesn't necessarily do that. If mm -hmm. you're going to fly something, some you know, for an outfit that has difficult operating procedures, or you're going to regularly undergo uh, additional training and um, pass milestones, then I think there's a great value to it. But if you're just going to rent an airplane and fly straight and level from A to B until you've got 1,500 hours, I don't think that's very valuable. And I think that's partly what he was trying to get at. I have okay. two comments, and then I will move on from this topic. Um, I just really like David Ogden's comment in the chat room about, he says, I think the hours question is like your college GPA, important for getting that first job, but after that, it doesn't really matter. Kind of the same thing happens in medicine. You know, board scores are really important, but it's important for that first job, and then after that, you know, it probably might not get looked at at all. Um, and that has no, that says nothing to, you know, how good of a candidate you're going to be. It's just a, you've met a certain requirement for that, that job. Um, and I think there's just so many other factors that go into it. You know, we make these um, minimum requirements for, 
you know, getting your ATP or being a captain, but that's just to make sure that people have at least some sort of foundation. There's so many other factors that go in in terms of personal aptitude, um, how, you know, there's a lot of people out there who work jobs just to have a job and their level of passion for the subject matter may be different. Um, their level of um, innate skill and their level of how, how much they put into it in order to become more, more competent. Um, I think those are all really important things that there's no good way to measure or test for any of that. So as long as we're always making, you know, a, a set requirement, I think that's okay. I think that's good. You have to have some way to ensure that at least minimum skill sets are there or able to be trained. Um, you're still going to run into problems. You can't, you can't get rid of any of that or every variable that's out there. And I, you know, and I'm sure that you've experienced the same type of thing, Nick, in your experience with the airlines, flying with people that, or maybe even in the military, but flying with people that have very low hours, very little experience. I should have turned off my phone. Sorry, I don't know if you can hear that in the background. Um, that uh, that fly the airplane magnificently and have great. Uh, crew resource management skills, etc., and then I'll, I'll fly with somebody who had may may have made a career of it in the in the military, and came out and had you know gobs of hours, um, and you know don't have the flying skills or the or the CRM skills or whatever that this brand new person had with very little experience just flying a one seventy two straight and level for a lot of their flying yeah. time. So I mean it's. It's the, this, right. it's a big spectrum, right. and and I've flown. <laughs> I, you you understand what I'm trying to say is how, yeah, it's, but it's but how do you crude measure? How do you? I mean, I know that 1,500 hours. As I said, I started off by saying it's not a be all end all kind of thing, but it's a, it's like well, so what do you? How do you ensure that the person that you're hiring is going to be qualified to do this well in in the the career? I don't know. Yes, you take the well, the best, you know. Yeah. measurement that perhaps you have and then you go based on your judgment of the individual and then you hope that it works out right and hopefully you identify any serious problems during training or during a, a point before which it becomes a serious problem for you know yeah and, and i would say structured capacity. training not just building of ours is right. uh, what's important exactly and, you know, one of the other things of the aftermath of that uh, Colgan 4507 was the uh, training records. And that was one of the problems with this particular incident where the captain had a not so great history of um, passing check rides. Or in other words, he had trouble or passing check rides. Yeah. And we didn't have a system in place here in the U.S. at that time that, you know, would, would be like a, a database, like a national database where – any airline would have access to that information if if he went from one to another airline that they would go wait a minute you know you're telling me you're applying for our airline and you failed to you know major uh, check rides and then you know that'd be a red flag but there weren't any uh, there wasn't a system like that back then so you know there were some some positive things that came from from it perhaps you know you, we can argue until we're you know out of breath about the 1500 hour thing um, but Sadly, I think one of the things that should have been um, addressed and was not, and I understand there are a lot of you know forces out there that did not want this to happen, but uh, this whole idea of commuting to work uh, all the way across the country and then starting your very long day and flying well you know into the early morning hours, 
um, with, you know, without any kind of rest is, um, you know, that's, that's something that should have been uh, addressed and it was not. And all you, all you commuters out there, quit, quit looking at me. I know they're all looking at me right now or listening to me and they're hating me, but you know what I mean? You know, with that, that you have to be responsible for your physical uh, wellness. I'm sorry, Steph. Oh, no, I just said that's something that's kind of incredible to me, that at least that there's no limit on how far you would be able to commute, you know, mm-hmm. live within, you know, and it's, it's different in my profession. There's not a mandate. You must live somewhere. But if you're on call, perhaps, you know, if you're, if you're someone who's required to go into the hospital or see patients while you're on call, if you get a call, then you have to be, and, and you know, Nick's talked about this as well, within a certain time frame of the hospital so whether you live there or whether you can be close to there they can get there in a timely manner yeah i want a, a surgeon that's well rested you want someone uh, who's yeah, yeah. Someone, someone who's sleeping in their bed nearby when they get the call to come in at two o'clock in the morning not right. you know it may suck for that person but you know it's best for those well, of us he's operating on or she's operating on yeah, yeah. anyway um so um liz is trying to push us on to one of the good parts, one of the better parts of the show, which is, of course, your feedback. Captain, incoming message. Let's start with Derek. I, I think this is the third try now, Derek. We're trying to get your uh, feedback uh, covered on the show. And ding, 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 ding. You made it this time. He says, maybe a bit late. <laughs> Yeah, he was not talking about us. He's talking about himself. But just a quick bit of feedback. Towards the end of the summer, I got my aviation fix. My brother-in-law volunteers at Headcorn Aerodrome in Kent, England. He helps clients prepare for the Spitfire joyride flights. I spent a day there watching the Spitfire take off and land several times. The flight includes views of the White Cliffs of Dover and Leeds Castle with a victory rollback and over the airfield if the customer is still feeling okay. It was a glorious day, and my brother-in-law even managed to get me airside and sit in the cockpit. This was a great experience. I will have to save my money and maybe one day get to go up in one. This may take a few years as it costs 2,800 pounds for a 20-minute flight. Wow, that's a lot of money. I know, and you don't want to spend one minute of it, minute of it with your head in the sick bag. Oh, I know, that is <laughs> very expensive. Every time you're honking, you're going, oh my God, there's another hundred pounds. <laughs> Yes, I see you're sick, but why are you crying? Well, <laughs> oh, man. My brother-in-law has been up twice for free, as he has been volunteering now for several years. A dream come true. It's a beautifully positioned small airfield in the Kent countryside with uh, always something going on. Parachutists uh, were jumping all day. Also joy rides in an American T-6 Harvard in a tiger moth and sometimes the dove plane. This flies alongside the Spitfire and is a great way to get up close and take some amazing photos and is a cheaper alternative. What's a dove plane? A dove is a, uh, I'm pretty sure it's of two-engined, uh, low-wing, a small airliner, 12-seater or something. Oh, never heard uh, of that. Well, just after the World, World War II, you know, that kind of vintage. Okay. Interesting. Uh, let's see. Uh, in fact, the airfield was used by the Americans during World War II, and we're, we've been cleaning up the trash ever since. No, he didn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, operating the uh, P-51 Mustangs. Then a week later, I spent the weekend in Bournemouth. Is that right? Yep. This was the four-day air show weekend. Bournemouth is a seaside resort Nick will know. 
and the air show now in its 12th year is along the seafront. My in-laws live in an apartment overlooking the sea right at the right on the clifftops between Bournemouth and Buscombe Pier. So we get an amazing view, and it's exactly right in the center line of the show. Oh, that's cool. Uh, you get all the usual displays, Eurofighter, Euro Euro fighter, Euro fighter, Typhoon, Blades Aerobatic Display Team, uh, all ex-Red Aero Pilots, uh, Battle of Britain Memorial Flight, Chinook, Chinook heli- Helicopter. Wow, just to name a few. Perhaps, uh, Nick, you'd like to continue with his feedback because I'm having trouble with my tongue getting tied. <laughs> I was just sending you a picture of a dove. Oh, were you? Okay. Well, then let me continue. You even get displays at sunset and in the evening with stunning twilight pyrotechnic air displays. Also, the Tigers Army Parachute Display Team jumping at night glowing in the sky. It really is a great show with so much more on the ground going on as well. Approximately 800,000. Is that right? Wow. Visited over the four days. Definitely worth a visit, and it's totally free. The only downside this year was no Red Arrows, as they are touring Canada and the U.S. As the air show is over the sea and weather permitting, they would normally do their full display. I did hear Steph saying she saw them do their full display in Canada, and she has only seen flypasts before. Steph, what did you think? They are impressive and a crowd puller. What did you think, Steph? Yeah, I, sorry, I had to unmute myself there. Uh-huh. Uh, no, I, it was a great show. We, we really loved it. Um, it was kind of interesting because they actually opened the air show, which we were not expecting. So we were not kind of in where we thought we would really want to be position-wise to see them. Um, That's unusual. So, yeah, it was unusual. You know, we were expecting, you know, some, some smaller stuff and some aerobatic stuff, you know, um, single aircraft, small stuff. And then uh, you know, it was something like, wait, are they going to start the show with the red arrows? Or is this just like a teaser? And they're yeah. Like, no, they're actually going to do their show. So let's, let's go find someplace a little better to stand and watch. You'd, you'd think they'd uh, save yeah. the climax for the end of the show, right? Well, they had the snowbirds in the same show. Oh, that was okay. the home. Oh, uh, that's right. You were in Canada. Yeah, we were in Canada. Gotcha. So it makes a little bit of sense, but I thought maybe they would be back-to-back near the end. But nope. Mm-hmm. Started off with a bang, and it was, it was a very nice show. I definitely enjoyed it. It's a shame you were a little closer, I gather. No, I think, you know, we were we were certainly close enough, but we were just a little surprised. So, you know, I'm glad we were there for the actual start of the show because um, if you expect, you know, the headliners to be near the end, you might not show up in time to see them. No, that's very true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we um, have several of the people that were in my meetup uh, or the meetup in Chicago, um, David Ogden, the guy with the great pipes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if Jeff was on earlier. I think he was Jeff um, Gebhardt. Yeah, he was there. Mm-hmm. And it looks like uh, Kylie has uh, joined us as well. Hi, Kylie. Yeah. Everybody loved the feedback and uh, look forward to hearing more from you. Uh, let's see. Derek ends with, thanks again, guys, for the great shows that just keep on coming. Is that a is that a, a criticism or a compliment? Hmm. <laughs> you, never you, can't, you can't get rid of us, Derek. Yeah. And, uh, and you can't, unfortunately, stop listening and or watching either. So yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> Oh, I've seen this. Uh, Nick sent me uh, via private chat a picture of the dove. And I've, yeah, I've seen that airplane before. Yeah, cool. I just didn't know what it was called. Okay, item two, Dixon. Hello, APG crew. Hope you are all doing well. To be honest, I haven't had a time to key in to as many episodes as I would like to, but that is due to what I'm writing to you all about today. On APG 374, Ramp Rat Life Hacks, 
You all helped answer some of my questions as a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed new ramp agent. Four months have since, or passed since, I wrote that message, and I thought I would pop in an update uh, and update you on what has undoubtedly been the best summer I've ever spent. First off, I appreciate the advice, Dana, specifically the knee pad advice. You are not kidding about how badly those pits will bang up your knees. I've decided to treat myself and upgrade my standard issue knee pads to some heavy-duty ones because Airbus and Boeing certainly did not take our shins into consideration when they designed their aircraft. Hang on a minute. I, I've watched people load my Airbus, and they just stand there with a little box of electronics, and they twiddle it, and all they, they shuffle all the cargo things around. They spin them about. They roll them down the... I mean, I don't understand. What's this? Typical, typical wide-body pilot guy. <laughs> Is there some other kind of airplane? Yeah, there are, actually. Yeah. Yes, stuff. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Well, all right. Yeah. Or you have to actually Maybe get now up. Maybe that you're retired, you'll actually you'll, you'll see a passenger on a few of them, and you can take a peek out the window <laughs> and see what's going on while your bags are being loaded. Uh, I'd, I'd rather not. I'd rather be close to the aisle. Yeah, it's, it's the drinks car. <laughs> It's best not to watch what happens to your luggage sometimes. Yeah, too. that's true. <laughs> keep those keep those window shades down. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's better that you just not see it. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. Oh, that's fine. Uh, that was a good interruption. Definitely worth it. Um, if anyone else out there has ever considered trying a ramp job just for the sake of trying it, <laughs> do it. I had originally taken this job because I had always wanted to since I was a kid, and I thought that this would be a short-term thing, that I would be ready to drop by, drop by the end of the summer. But lo and behold, four months later, four months later, and I'm a full-fledged crew chief. It seems surreal, and to be honest, weird, to think that before I'm legally old enough to drink a beer, I'm being tasked with overseeing the arrival, offload, onload, and departure of a multi-million dollar commercial airliner. Just the other week, in fact, I was able to cross something off my bucket list and push back a 737. My mother always tells me how enamored with the pushbacks I was uh, as a little one, so it is fantastic to be able to say that I finally did it. Coming into this fall, my job helped me realize how much of a fit aviation was for me, and I actually ended up switching majors at the dawn of this fall semester. So starting in the spring, I will no longer be a business student, but an aeronautical science student at MTSU in their professional pilot program. I guess that's Mid Middle Tennessee uh, State? Yep, oh, okay. State <laughs> uh, who'd have thought that signing up for a job to make a little extra money over the summer would end up with such a major life decision being made. I certainly I certainly didn't, that's for sure. And hey, with Middle Tennessee State University's affiliation with the ACME pi Pipeline Program, who knows? I may be able to thank some of you in person for helping me embark on my biggest journey yet. Thanks for the fantastic work you all do on this podcast, and keep it up. Let me know if any of you plan on swinging by Nashville anytime soon so I can say hello. Yours, Dixon. Isn't that, isn't that great? That yeah. sounds fantastic. So nice uh, to hear that uh, he's getting on so well. And uh, I, exp explain to me uh, what that is. Uh, they, you can go through university and become a pilot? Well, I think that, yeah, if he ends up um, going through the – oh, he says he's going to do the professional pilot program. Yeah, there, we have several um, – many of the major airlines have – 
uh, made af- deals or affiliations or whatever, um, make, making it easier for pilots within their program to meet certain standards and then kind of get into a pipeline where they are given maybe some preferential uh, treatment yeah. as far as uh, le- uh, interviews. Instructing jobs and then on to interviews for, you know, the associated regional carriers and then some even have just direct flow-through programs as you upgrade into the, the majors. Well, that sounds great. Well done, anyway. Yeah. And Dixon, well done on uh, listening to those little voices in your head that are telling you, hey, maybe this should be my my career. Because a lot of people, I think, uh, just kind of stick with what they're, they've are they been planning on doing forever, and uh, they miss out on those opportunities to pick a career they'll be happy in. So. By yeah. the way, is Middle Tennessee nicer than Outer Tennessee? Uh, in general, yes. Okay. I don't really know what that means, but <laughs> it's in the middle of the state. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Not so, not so much the, the far east or the. Not the far west. east nor the, the far west. Yeah. Well, uh, Hong Kong's in the far east, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, not quite that yeah. far. Oh, okay. We're talking like Memphis far, like on the oh, Mississippi River. Okay. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> Badoom, Thanks bam. That. That's, actually, that's actually west in Tennessee, though. Yeah, You're that's true. Like, yeah, that's true. Wow. <laughs> By the way, uh, Dane is not with us today because he has been enduring, experiencing, whatever you want to call it, his recurrent training um, yesterday and today. And we did get word, I believe, through some private channels and maybe even here in the video chat room that uh, he passed with flying colors. So he's just relaxing and having a a beverage or two while we flail around here on the show. So congratulations, congratulations. Dana. Uh, Yeah, well done for doing so well. I thought Flying Colors was an airline. Uh, Might be. I have no idea what what the origin of that means, but it usually means good things. (laughs) He did well. Excellent. Yeah. Good job. All right. Yeah. And he's going to tell us all about it, I'm sure, next time he's on. Okay. Um, Robert from Marietta, or as I like to say, Mayretta, um, wrote in and said, here are some sights and sounds from the very well-attended 5th Annual Mayor's 5K on the 5th Runway, hosted by Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms back on September 7th. And yes, that is her real name. About 2,000 people gathered early on a Saturday morning. No one fought. They all exercised. The world still turned when a runway at the world's busiest airport closed for a few hours. The 5th Annual Mayor's 5K on the 5th runway hosted by Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms returned September 7th. Metro Atlanta laced up their shoes, and I guess this must be a blurb from a a press release that I'm reading. Um, Anyway, it says that it's a a special opportunity to race on one of the flattest and fastest courses in Metro Atlanta. This is a USATF certified 5K course, uh, also a qualifier for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, that's the newspaper in town, Peachtree Road Race, which I believe yep. Steph just did this past year along with I, uh, Dispatcher I did Mike. This year and I, yep, and I've done it once before in the past, and I will tell you that's a great way to qualify and get a fast time for the Peachtree Road Race course because that that course is not flat. It's not flat. Not even close. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, uh, okay. Uh, let's see. He took a little video as he likes to do. And the first part of it is very, very windy. 
And so it's hard to hear, but you can see he's out on the runway, and there's usually yeah. nothing. Yep. Ooh, wow. Excuse me. Uh, to stop the uh, wind from uh, blowing, as they say. So let's hear from Robert, uh, part one here. So, uh, good morning, crew, from the uh, fifth runway at uh, ETL. Doing the uh, uh, Mayor's 5K this morning. Um, I put in the post there. Uh, this is the closest I've been to the fifth runway in a while. I'm sure if uh, Jeff or Dana have had a... Uh, So, just started the uh, walk here, and uh, I think there is a 737 that Delta has parked down at the end. I can zoom in from here, I guess for some photo ops uh, towards the end there. But, great morning, and I uh, wanted to uh, send that over to you guys. Have a good week. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right, and uh, the reason why the wind all of a sudden st stopped, he just turned, he went from the selfie camera to the forward-facing camera, and I guess the position of the microphones on the cell phone were drastically enough, or, uh, enough of a difference to really cut down hmm. on that wind noise, which I'm, was kind of amazing. He, he said he just set off on the walk. Mm -hmm. I mean, I thought it was a run. Is he walking oh, this run? run? You can walk. Yeah, you can walk. No, I'm not sure if He's um, out there doing a 5K. Doesn't yeah. matter how you get to the, to the finish. And okay. I don't know if this is from. I think that he took this video as well. I'm not sure. It looks like I'm looking at the link. It looks like um, it's maybe from the same um, account. But anyway, regardless, uh, this is also something you don't normally see, or in our case here on the fifth runway in Atlanta. Sound. They opened up the uh, runway a little bit too early, and that was a mad dog that just ran over <laughs> all of them on the runway. Kind of a mess. Sorry. <laughs> Miscommunication. Yeah. Anyway, that was pretty cool, I thought. Um, so a little snippet of the uh, of the high school band out there playing. And, uh, oh, he also sent us some feedback, um, also from Robert. Uh, good that I wasn't the only av geek that enjoyed the TWA hotel at JFK like Dr. Steph did. I remember seeing Saarinen's work. Is that the way you pronounce the uh, Saarinen, architect's name? I Saarinen? Yeah, I can never say his name correctly. It's Aero Saarinen, I think. Okay. So, uh, for the first time at Dulles. I guess he, uh, oh, he was the architect of, of Dulles, apparently, in yeah. the terminal there. large terminal uh, there. Yeah. And the smell he likely never intended. I think it was fried chicken and a sewage smell. Hmm. <laughs> not sure what that means. Mm. I thought uh, it was, <laughs> okay. I thought it would never come back there again, but gave it another try. I pinched my nose, and I never regret it. There will never be another Dulles or TWA JFK terminal, and this documentary tells many of the reasons why. If you have a chance to watch it, Dulles reminds me of the '80s TV miniseries V: The Visitors. I know I keep promising, but I will try to meet up with y'all soon. Safe travels. 
And then he has a link to uh, this. It must be Amazon Video. Um, actually, I thought it was a link to his book about uh, the uh, the architect, but uh, perhaps it's a uh, documentary as well. I don't know. So we'll have that in the show notes for you to check out yourself if you'd like. Okay. Yeah, and I recently just saw a, um, not the architecture podcast, but, um, oh man, it might have been the Smithsonian Channel um, on on cable. Had a, a blurb about him, uh, or a, a short, uh, probably hour-long special on the Sarnanins because his father was an architect as well, um, and they designed some, some pretty cool things. So fascinating stuff if you're at all interested in it. And if you are, you probably already know all about them. But anyway. Very cool. Um, getting close to the two-hour mark. Uh, let's try to fit one more piece of feedback in, and then we'll get on with the best part of the show, which, of course, you all know is the old pilot's plane tail. Um, this uh, from Ray down under, Ray Davis. Uh, g'day, everyone. Hope that you're all well. Uh, here is a news article on the Travolta 707 transfer to the Aviation Museum in Albion Al- 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 Park. New South Wales? Uh, Albion. Albion? Albion. 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 Thank you. Uh, New South Wales. I got the NSW part. He didn't spell that out. That's good. Well done. As Dr. Steph would say, take care, you all. (laughs) I wish you wouldn't say it that way, though. We'll work on your southern. uh, You got to spell it y'all. Yeah, not you all. One word. No O U. Just Y apostrophe A L L. That's it. Uh, the news article that to which he has linked us is from smh.com, whatever that is. Uh, high flyer Travolta to jet into Australia, but pricey gift is grounded. It was meant to be John Travolta's greatest gift to Australia, but plans for the Hollywood star to fly his once beloved Qantas Boeing 707 back to Australia in November have been thwarted with the vintage airliner gathering cobwebs on an airfield in Georgia. Instead, Travolta will arrive in Australia empty-handed as he embarks on a national speaking tour. As a result, a band of eager plane spotters is trying to get through an enormous amount of red tape and maintenance issues to bring the big plane home. Looks like it's going to cost about $2 million based on their estimates to carry out the amount of repairs and maintenance required uh, to uh, meet all the requirements to get the aircraft back in the air of former Qantas pilot John Dennis who's overseeing the project on behalf of the Historical Aircraft Restoration Society, which ultimately wants to put the plane on display at its enormous facility near Albion Park. Albion. Albion. Dang it. (laughs) Dang it. Dang it. Dang it. Dang it. Um, Anyway, A Park. (laughs) Capital A. Travolta had... Travolta had reportedly blocked out a month of his filming schedule to allow him to travel on the plane and be part of its planned handover. However, these days, Travolta's availability was probably not going to be a major issue. Oh, that's kind of a, wow. That was rude. not got a lot of work on. Very, very rude. not going to be a problem here. Say what? not really doing a whole lot, are you? Anyway, yeah, so it's somewhere south of where I live in Georgia, just uh, waiting for somebody to uh, spend the money on it, I guess, to get the thing back. Anyway, thought that was interesting. Thank you, yeah, Ray, for the update on the 707 that is going to be returned to its uh, homeland, Australia. And uh, with that, I think it is time for us now to 
do the best part of the show, which, of course, everybody knows. The old pilot's plane tales. The old pilot's plane tales. Après moi le déluge, part two. This is London. The Air Ministry have just issued the following communicate. In the early hours of this morning, a force of Lancasters of Bomber Command, led by Wing Commander G.P. Gibson, DSO, DFC, attacked with mines the dams of the Myrna and Sauber reservoirs. These control two-thirds of the water storage... In the previous tale about the Dam Busters raid, we talked about the life of Wing Commander Guy Gibson, who led the newly formed 617 Squadron on its first operational mission to attack the great dams of the Ruhr Valley. However, we've got a little ahead of ourselves, as the attack would never have come about had it not been for the genius of one man. Gibson describes the man as a scientist and very clever aircraft designer as well. He was neither young nor old, but just a quiet, earnest man who worked very hard. He was one of the real backroom boys, of whom little will be told until after the war, and even then I'm not sure their full story will be told. The backroom boy was Barnes Wallace, a man who was one of four children, born to Edith Wallace and her husband Charles. Charles was a doctor, and they all lived in Ripley, Derbyshire, where Charles had his medical practice, despite contracting polio from one of his patients, which left him crippled. Barnes and his brother John had turned part of the house into a workshop which may have given birth to his wish to become an engineer. The bright child... Barnes won a scholarship to a school called Christ's Hospital in Horsham, Surrey, a long way south from their home in Derbyshire. From there, he moved to a grammar school built by the worshipful company of Haberdashers. Although Barnes was a natural at mathematics, English and science, he was completely incompetent at Latin. By the end of his successful education, he had decided that he wanted to be an engineer, a profession where a lack of skill with Latin wasn't really a hindrance. So, at the young age of 17, he was apprenticed to a shipbuilder on the Isle of Wight as a marine engineer, and he completed a degree course in engineering by the University of London. An opportunity came up for him to work at Vickers, designing airships, and along with John Temple he led the way in airship construction, building the R-100, at the time the largest airship ever designed. His concept of geodetic construction gave the airship immense strength whilst ensuring a light structure, and harked back to the work done by Professor Schutt, who built the airship LS-1 in 1909, a design which had also been explored by Joshua Humphreys in his use of diagonal structures in the construction of the first U.S. Navy frigates in the late 1700s and can be seen in the interior hull of the USS Constitution on display in Boston Harbour. Simply put, the design makes use of a frame formed by a spirally crossing basket weave of load-bearing members. The concept allows two geodesic arcs to intersect 
on a curved surface in a manner that cancels out the torsional load on each arc, giving great strength. The R100 was a fantastic success and flew to Canada and back, but following the entirely avoidable crash of its sister ship, the R101, built by the Air Ministry, the project was abandoned and the R100 broken up. It was in 1922 that Wallace met Molly Bloxham. Wallace was a shy man, and had never been in love until he encountered Molly. They met through his father's remarriage following the death of his wife, and Wallace took a shine to Molly immediately. Her father, however, did not approve of their courtship. Fortune, though, was on their side, as at the time Molly was struggling with mathematics as part of her degree course, and it was through mathematics that Barnes was able to continue writing to her. Her father decreed that the two could correspond, only if Barnes taught Molly mathematics in his letters. What followed were a series of witty, tender, and totally accessible introductions to calculus, trigonometry, and electrostatic induction that, remarkably, wooed and won the girl. On St George's Day 1925, Barnes and Molly got married, and their union followed with four children of their own, in addition to adopting Molly's sister's children when they were sadly orphaned following their parents' death in an air raid. The family lived in Effingham, Surrey, only a few miles from where I was raised. By now Wallace had moved to the Vickers Aircraft Factory at Brooklyn's Motor Circuit and Aerodrome to work on pre-World War II aircraft. His geodetic construction was used in the Wellesley, the Warwick and the Windsor aircraft as well as the better-known Wellington bomber. Only the Wellington was to be built in any great number, and it was still operational at the end of the war, and renowned for its ability to withstand substantial damage. During the structural testing performed at the Royal Aircraft Establishment, Farnborough, the proposed structure demonstrated not only the required strength factor of 6, but reached a factor of 11 without any sign of failure proving that the geodesic design had a strength far in excess of normal levels. In parallel to his aircraft designs, Wallace saw a need for strategic bombing to destroy Germany's ability to construct their weapons of war. In a paper, he wrote, If their destruction or paralysis can be accomplished, they offer a means of rendering the enemy utterly incapable of continuing to prosecute the war. As a means to achieve this, he developed a 10-ton super bomb. At the time, there wasn't an aircraft capable of carrying such a weapon, so, in addition to his detailed work on the weapon, he designed a six-engined aircraft that could carry it as well. The Victory Bomber made it to the wind tunnel, but by then the Lancaster was being modified to carry these monster weapons so this vast aircraft wouldn't be needed. His super bomb wasn't just a big weapon. The RAF already had those in the form of blockbuster bombs. 
It followed a different concept that Wallace had devised in that it had a very strong casing and a long, slim, ogival shape with an armoured-pointed tip that was designed to penetrate deep below the surface of the earth. In this way, the resultant explosion would create an effect similar to a powerful earthquake by creating strong shockwaves. As if that wasn't enough, the explosion created massive caverns below the surface known as camouflets, which caused the surface to firstly heave upwards and then collapse down into the space created, known as the trapdoor effect. The airmen who dropped these bombs reported that the target structures often stood undamaged by the detonation, but then the crater collapsed, the ground shifted, and the target collapsed. The bomb was dropped from high altitude and accelerated under the influence of gravity to near supersonic speeds. The Lancasters that carried the 10-ton weapon, known as Grand Slam, and the smaller 5.1-ton Tallboy, had to be specially modified, and after takeoff, the wings bent upwards 6 to 8 inches more than usual. What's more, upon its release, the Lancaster would usually leap two or three hundred feet upwards. These massive bombs took time to construct, particularly since they were filled with hot, molten torpex explosive poured by hand into the base of the upturned casing after melting it in kettles. The torpex took a full month to cool, so precious were these bombs that should a sortie be abandoned, the crew were told to bring the weapon back home rather than jettisoning it. When this occurred, the bomber would often have to divert to land at an airfield with a very long runway to accommodate their extra landing weight. This massive bomb could do remarkable damage to infrastructure that was previously considered untouchable. Some of the successful attacks were on such targets as the Saumur Rail Tunnel, where a tall boy bored through 60 feet, that's 18 metres, of hillside to explode inside the rail tunnel, completely blocking it. Heavily fortified V2 launch sites were rendered useless, bunkers destroyed, and U-boat pens covered with over 14 feet, more than 4 metres of reinforced concrete, were smashed open. The Nazi V-3 guns, known as the London Gun, which fired huge shells, powered by rockets and accelerated by multiple charges inside the barrel, was housed inside a bunker within a hillside. It was destroyed by tall boys. Fifty-four raids against the Schildescher viaduct had no effect, but one attack with a grand slam completely destroyed sections of the structure. Perhaps the most famous target was the German battleship Tirpitz, hit by three tall boys, two direct hits and one near miss, that caused the ship to capsize immediately and subsequently explode when fire spread to a magazine. The death toll was over 1,000. The weapon that Barnes Wallace is best known for is, of course, the bouncing bomb, more correctly known by its codename, Upkeep. 
The dams of the Ruhr had been identified as an important strategic target even before the start of the Second World War. In addition to providing hydroelectric power and pure water for steelmaking, they supplied drinking water and water for the canal transport systems. Calculations indicated that attacks with large bombs could be effective, but required a degree of accuracy that was beyond the most sophisticated bomb-aiming systems. The size of the dams made them near impossible to destroy. They were constructed from concrete and steel, and the Ida was three-quarters of a mile, that's 1.2 kilometres thick at its base. Wallace knew that unless the explosive charge could be kept very close, preferably in contact with the dam wall, the water in between would cushion and disperse the force of the explosion. However, should a mine be detonated in contact with the dam, then the effect of the explosive would be amplified by the mass of water and reflected back as secondary shock waves with devastating effect. The Germans knew that the dams might be susceptible to attack and had wisely fitted torpedo nets to protect them. It was early in 1942 that Wallace began experimenting by skipping marbles over water tanks in his garden, leading to his paper, written in April that year, entitled Spherical Bomb Surface Torpedo. The idea was to ricochet or skip a bomb along the water's surface, avoiding the torpedo nets, until it came to rest directly against the side of a battleship, or in this case, a dam wall. There it would sink, until, much like a depth charge, a hydrostatic pistol fired, setting off the explosive. The development of upkeep and the actual attack on the dams of the Ruria is a fascinating story, and will be told in the next tale or two. During the war, Wallace had been dispersed with Vickers Design Office from Brooklands to the nearby Burhill Golf Club, but when peace was declared, he returned to the main factory as the head of Vickers Armstrong Research and Development Department and was based in the former Motor Circuit's 1907 clubhouse. Here, he and his staff worked on many futuristic aerospace projects, including supersonic flight and variable geometry wing designs. He designed and had constructed an enormous atmospheric chamber, then the largest in the world, called the Stratosphere Chamber. With a volume of some 40,000 cubic feet, over 11,000 cubic metres, by the use of vacuum pumps and refrigeration units, it could simulate the atmospheric conditions at 70,000 feet, where the pressure was one twentieth of that at sea level and the temperature down to minus 65 degrees centigrade. Many aircraft would be tested within this chamber, as well as marine vessels, guns, armoured vehicles, radar heads and the like. Even Arctic explorers made use of the facility, to develop clothing for sub-zero temperatures. Along with his variable geometry wing designs, such as the futuristic Swallow concept tailless aircraft, he worked on laminar flow theory in both aircraft and underwater designs, such as the experimental rocket-propelled torpedo, codenamed Heyday. In 1955, Wallace agreed to act as a consultant for the project to build the Parkes Radio Telescope in Australia. 
Some of the concepts he suggested were used in the final design, including the idea of supporting the dish at its centre, the geodetic structure of the dish, and the master equatorial control system. Sadly, unhappy with the direction the project had taken, Wallace left the team halfway into the design study and refused to accept his £1,000 consultant's fee. In the 1960s, Wallace proposed using large cargo submarines to transport oil and other goods, thus avoiding surface weather conditions. Moreover, his calculations indicated that power requirements for an underwater vessel were lower than for a comparable conventional ship, and they could be made to travel at a much higher speed. He developed ideas for aircraft capable of efficient flight at speed ranges from subsonic to hypersonic, and his understanding of supersonic aerodynamics led to research that underwrote the variable geometry design of the air intakes for Concorde's Olympus 593 engines. His ideas were many and varied, a brilliant aircraft designer with a flair for what we might glibly call thinking outside of the box. He found solutions where others would shrug their shoulders in bewilderment. Wallace became a fellow of the Royal Society and was knighted in 1968. He also received an honorary doctorate from the Harriet Watt University. He was awarded £10,000 for his war work from the Royal Commission on Awards to Inventors, but his lasting grief at the losses that occurred in the Dambusters attack caused him to donate the entire sum to his alma mater, Christ's Hospital School to set up the RAF Foundationers Trust, which, to this very day, allows the children of RAF personnel killed or injured in action to attend the school. There are a number of pubs named after this very British hero, and even a beer, the Amber Ales Barnes Wallace, described as an IPA-style bitter, fit for a local hero who once lived on Butterley Hill. Wallace lived with his family in Effingham from 1930 until his death on the 30th of October 1979. He was buried alongside Molly at St. Lawrence Church. On his gravestone is an epitaph written in Latin, a language he never mastered. Supernit humum fugiente pena. It is the motto of the Christ's Hospital Barnes Wallace Foundation and is taken from Horace. It reads, Severed from the earth with fleeting wing. At noon on the day he was laid to rest, an Avro Vulcan bomber from 617 Squadron, the Dambusters, flew overhead as a mark of respect. Respect for a man that all the Allied nations owed a great debt of gratitude. Very nice, very nice. I only have two... This Wallace guy was a pretty smart man. But I I have two questions, actually. You said he was from Effingham? 
Uh, he lived in Effingham. Oh, Effingham. And it's, he, so that was a came bad from Ripley. So that Dutch. was that a bad place to live because you said sorry right after you said he was uh, living in Effingham. <laughs> <laughs> it's, an, it's an old English <laughs> word which we don't talk about anymore. But you said Effingham, sorry. 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 Oh, oh, I thought sorry. you said sorry. Okay. You know, and, like uh, sorry with a fringe on top. <laughs> and, and the other thing is, what is wrong with the darn walls out there? It, um, I, I don't understand what the angst is with the wall. The wall? What? Yeah, the damn wall. You keep... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but doom, bam. Very good. Very Where's good. my rim shot? <laughs> Yeah, no, another great plain tale. I'm sorry. We need a vote out of a secret ballot, I think. Secret ballot, please. Secret ballot. Shut up. I have all the controls here. Yeah, we we better not pay too much Nick our job to be I think they're organizing a coup, apparently. He'll cut our and they're getting reinforcements. They were getting reinforcements. I see somebody that's oh, joined Dana. joined the coup. Dana has joined us on the uh, on oh, the yeah. stream. Is a newly qualified or recently requalified pilot, I think. And you'll have to hang on. Let me see. Do I need to re unmute? Unmute. There we go. Well, okay. Try. Well, it. I unmuted myself. Oh, okay. And I just you're just going to let us unmuted me. You're you're just uh, hanging. We're just hanging on your forthcoming words. Please, yeah, please congratulations, go. Dana. Well done, mate. Woo-hoo. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Applause. I'll, I'll fill everybody in on the. Uh, I'll fill everybody in on all the details that uh, I've missed uh, over the last couple of weeks uh, in the next show. As okay. we hanging like that. Well, I'm glad that you. Because I don't want to interrupt the show at this point. Yeah, we uh, we're trying to get as much uh, of the feedback knocked out as we can. So, uh, but we do look forward. Well, you can tell us a little bit. I mean, uh, you feel relieved? You, you're happy? You're you, you're good for another nine months? Does a bear poop in the woods? A beer? Well, he does when he's relieved. Oh, a bear. Okay. <laughs> a beer. Not a beer heard, like what's going heard, into your heard, mouth right now as you're taking a yeah. sip of it. When he's relieving himself. Oh, yes, no, he's okay. drinking wine. Yeah, I, have, I don't have any beer. <laughs> beer, 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 beer. Actually, no, I do. In, in Nigel's glasses. Oh, I, well, I, I'm drinking something else in celebration. Uh, it begins with a B, but it's not beer. It's bourbon. 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 Um, so, um, yes, it was uh, an interesting experience. The first time in my entire uh, flying career that I've had the FAA observe the APD, or the, uh, was it authorized? What's that APD? I don't, I don't, don't well, ask I actually me. I don't, don't know. know. I don't know. He's, the, he's an the APD. Uh, designated examiner for the airline. Uh, so they have to be checked out I think every it, Yeah, it's awesome pilot dude. Awesome pilot dude. Oh, authorized pilot designee. I think that's what it is. Um, anyways, uh, yeah, so he had to have his observation. Of course, uh, there's, I think, 10 or 11 APDs in the department now, if even that many. So there's only 10 or 11 events the entire year that the uh, APD has to get certified. You know, there's only 11 guys, so it's only once per year. So I, of course, drew the luck of the draw and had the uh, FAA observing his certification uh, or getting his certification while they exa- uh, the, uh, the examiner examined us. So there was a lot less room for any um, mistakes or leeway, uh, allowing for me to make no mistakes um, and, uh, it went, uh, it went pretty, 
I'm pretty stoked. I mean, I I, I, I can go into a lot more detail, but I'll leave it with uh, it, it went very well. Dan is being so modest. What you he's not telling you is that in these situations, they want to pick the best of the best to be the people getting the check ride. So there's not going to be any issue whatsoever for the instructor pilot uh, grading Dana. Right, Dana? Uh, yeah. Come well, on, just kind of keep playing with yes. me here on this one. Well, I, I do have to admit that the uh, Glenn, who is the APD for the, uh, did I mention the airline earlier? I don't think so. No. No, okay. Um, Acme, uh, the APD for Acme, um, he is one of, uh, in the department, one of the coolest uh, coolest dudes. He's really laid back and, and realistic and, and down to earth. So I was fortunate to have him. But one of the things he did say um, in when you know when the uh, the uh, lovely government official was uh, gone, uh, he said there are two types of uh, check rides that I like to give when I'm dealing with having the examiner examining me, and he said either I like the the, the pilots that have their uh, proverbial uh, stuff together, um, and they do a knock it out of the ballpark type of job, or the other is the people that are just completely. Uh, well, that word I was just going to use, I had to stop myself. Um, screwing it up is the better way. Uh, just where it's a clear cut, it's not a gray area per se, where it's either they're doing a great job, just sign, you know, get them done, or just uh, ax them because they're just not doing a very good job at all. So fortunately, I was on the uh, good end of the spectrum with a, a good FO um, that uh, we both uh, did a very good job and uh, knocked it out of the park. Very so, good. I uh, really, really spent a lot of time preparing for it. Stressed me out beyond belief. And now I'm sipping on uh, my first bourbon in relief of uh, everything that happened over the past couple of weeks. Because it was a lot of work. Well, good. Well, we're glad you're here with us to share that and uh, look forward I'm, to uh, you know, hearing I'm more from be, what you've been doing. I'm happy to be here as well. And uh, I'm good for another nine months. Well, at least until I go get my medical next week. We'll have to wait and see on that one. But okay. that's not nearly as stressful as the government official watching over everything you're doing. Okie dokie. Um, oh, and by the way, David Ogden in the crew in the um, chat room, the live show here. By the way, if you're listening to this and you have not ever joined us when we record this live, you really do need to. Because uh, the people that are here with us uh, in, in the live chat room have a lot of fun and say a lot of derogatory things. Um, but um, <laughs> so you'd really enjoy it. But um and you know, even worse than what I get from my crew in the audio portion, mm -hmm. believe it or not. Um, but uh, David, um, when I was saying that I didn't have any beer, I actually lied because I just remembered that David did send me home from Chicago with some beer. And he told me I have to give you one of them, Dana. I would love to have one. As a matter of fact, uh, I do know somebody that has some other personal uh, beverages I have, I have that. Seeking. I guess I'm going to, I need to make a trip over there and deliver all your alcohol. All right, I can just meet you halfway. Okay. Well, whatever. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out eventually. Okay. Are you, uh, are the, uh, what's the name of that team that you like to uh, watch on uh, TV? The football team? Um, who? The uh, New England Patriots? Yeah, that's it. Are they still uh, doing that thing at the uh, place just down the road from where I live? Uh, they and I should be there Sunday. Well, there you go. Maybe we can work something out on Sunday afternoon. Uh, I, I, I hope to be there Sunday. I've got uh, some other interesting news I'll talk on in a different show. Okay. Um, I'm hoping to be there as well. I'm supposed to be back from Baltimore um, on Sunday. So, okay. Uh, moving no, on. Say it right. Baltimore. Baltimore. 
Balmer. I never heard anybody say it like that. But well, okay. that's what I, that's what when I had my meet up there, that's what I was told. Okay, Balmer. I I stand corrected, and I mean I'm really standing. Yeah. May Retta. May Retta. Roswell. It's May Retta. Lana. Lana. It's Lana. Yeah. Narlins. Louisville. Narlins. Okay. Um, moving on with um, a producer of the APG show, Paul. And he writes, not sure why this never occurred to me before, but I was listening to Joe Cocker's classic 1970 album, Mad Dogs and Englishmen. And couldn't help but think of your podcast. Not only does the album title immediately bring to mind APG, but it also includes the song Acme uh, Lady and the letter. So it's Acme Lady, I guess. And the letter, which begins with the lyrics, give me a ticket for an aeroplane. Seems like there could be some kind of cosmic connection here. Yeah, I think he's right. The real reason I'm writing, however, is that I wanted to mention something I came across in my airplane spotting hobby. Back in July, I noticed that a Piper Comanche with a New Zealand registration had landed at our local GA airport, KRVS. This got my attention, as one does not normally expect to see in their own backyard a single-engine light aircraft from a country that is 7,000-plus miles away. What is KRVS? Anybody know? Somebody look that up while I'm talking. Um, I googled the tail number, Zulu Kilo... Bravo Alpha Zulu, and was excited to find a very well-written blog detailing the adventures of Barry and Sandra, who are flying this aircraft around the world. The theme of the trip involves several 50-year anniversaries, including the 50th anniversary of AirVenture in Oshkosh. Perhaps you saw them there. I don't remember seeing them. Did any of you see the uh, Barry and Sandra? Um, Did not. Yeah, I don't remember, it. but KRVS is, is Richard L. Jones Jr. Richard Airport Jones. in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tulsa, Oklahoma. Ah, Air Cap. That's from Yeah. Um, yes. For the rest of us. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Tulsa is something that you've not heard over there in the UK. Maybe not. Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, I know the grass is as high as an elephant's ass or something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> No. Uh, Oklahoma, the musical. Oh, did the they say that in the... Uh, as an elephant's oh. eye. Oh, come on. Sorry. Uh, the musical. I don't know all the words to the musical. Sorry. Okay. Well, you're very sad. I know I am. <laughs> in, in more ways than you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start... Pre- I'm going to have a breakdown right now on the show live. Okay. Um I imagine that a, that flying a light airplane around the world is very challenging, challenging, uh, challenging, especially given the starting point of New Zealand, but it sounds as though they are managing well as they currently make their way across Russia. I encourage anyone who is interested to check out their blog and to follow them on FlightAware or other such tracking service as they continue this exciting adventure. Speaking of adventures, congratulations to Dr. Steph on completing her quest to visit visit all 50 U.S. states. I absolutely love the story and the telling of it as well. As a collector myself of states and airports and some other esoteric geographic entities, I could really identify with this story. So, Thanks, Paul. It was, it was a lot of fun. And on uh, more than one occasion, I've gone out of my way to include a state that was near but not 
on my route of travel just to say I'd been there. Also, I have had the criteria discussion many times. I have a fairly liberal definition of what constitutes having been in a state, as this helps my tally a bit. But I do hope to get back to those states that I have passed through, but in which I did not actually put my feet on the ground. So just curious, Dr. Steph, for those states that you drove to on your trip, for example, Oklahoma, did you just pull into a parking lot somewhere and step out of the car and get right back in? Seems kind of silly on some level, and yet I understand completely and would do the same thing. That really was a fun story, and thank you for sharing it. Paul. Yeah, the states I spent the least amount of time in were um, South Dakota, because I arrived there from, I drove from Fargo about 60 miles south at midnight just to cross the state border to say I'd been there. And also Mississippi. I flew into Memphis and drove across the border, got out of the car, took a picture with a sign that said Mississippi, and then drove to West Virginia from there. So that's as much time as you spent in. I spent a little bit more time in. You need to spend more time in Mississippi stuff. Come on. Doesn't everyone? Yes. I've spent a lot of time in Mississippi, actually. I've lived (laughs) years of my life. And I actually feel the same way. I, you know, the... The uh, criteria was just purely geographic. Like, have you been on that side of the state border or not? Um, Mm. But I do plan to go back to a lot of those places, too. A lot of things I want to see. Okay. Maybe your honeymoon. Mississippi is a great place for that. Mm. I need to drag us back up to 50%. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's the corners as high as an elephant sign, not the grass. Oh, thank goodness. I was hoping that you'd correct yourself. (laughs) I was just assuming you were all growing grass nowadays. I was embarrassed for you, but I didn't want to correct you uh, on the show live. Yeah, well, no, it's legal in some. Is is growing grass legal in Oklahoma? Uh, I don't know if it's there, but in a lot of places it is now. Yeah, I mean, if it gets as high as an elephant's high, it's pretty impressive. So I think, are you talking about marijuana grass? Is that what you're talking about? I just said grass. Ah, grass. Because in Georgia, I can go grass, grow Go grass? I can grow grass as well. <laughs> but it ain't the kind you're talking about, fella. I don't know. Anyway, Mr. I'm talking corn. I have a hard time growing grass in my backyard. Uh, okay, moving on. Not the, not this, is, recreational this is why anyway. we get so bogged down. <laughs> We just have fun talking. <laughs> I'm just smiling. Oh, good. And smoking. Hey, uh, this, I wish. this next I'm one... Drinking. Item number six is from uh, APG community producer and APG show producer, both. She's a double producer. Her name is Liz. Liz Piper, you may have heard of her. Uh, By the way, Liz is scurrying out of her house. We're we're seeing a lot of uh, back uh, chat conversation there because, uh, well, she just needs to leave her house for some reason. (laughs) Don't worry. Everything is okay. It's an, it's not an emergency situation. Yeah. She's uh, trying to sell her place and uh, the realtor is coming by with a client and they said, we don't want anything to dissuade them from buying this property. So you need to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> That's not very nice. I know. I didn't mean to it's say that. <laughs> Liz is going to kill me. Yeah. I hope she's not she listening. <laughs> So I'm hoping that she's not watching or listening to the show at this moment. <sighs> All of it. Uh-oh. <laughs> I think HR a few notes. She's still listening as she just sent a message. <laughs> Sorry. You know I love you. Okay. Um, 
The title of her feedback is Toledo City Council Approves Airport Name Change. Okay. So why is Toledo such, uh, such a dear place uh, to uh, Liz, uh, dear to her heart? Well, it's because they're naming the airport for someone who she just loves. Uh, let me read this. Uh, Toledo City Council on Tuesday voted unanimously to officially change the name of the Toledo Express Airport to the Eugene F. Kranz Toledo Express Airport. He was born in Toledo and graduated from Central Catholic High School. Now, all that's left is for the Federal Aviation Administration to authorize the name change. Uh, Gene Kranz was an iconic figure in the early space program, flight director to both Gemini and Apollo. He is best known for di- directing the successful efforts by the mission control team to save the crew of Apollo 13. He is also noted for his close-cut flat-top hair- haircut and the dapper mission vests of different styles and materials made by his wife, Maria, no, Marta Kranz, for his flight director missions. A personal friend of the American astronauts of his time, Kranz remains a prominent and colorful figure in the history of U.S. manned space exploration, the embodiment of NASA tough and competent of the Kranz dictum. Now, I've never, oh, she ends, great to see he's getting recognition with the naming of the airport after him. I've never heard of the Kranz dictum. Have you all heard of this? I have not. No, I have not. Okay. It sounds vaguely rude. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Dictum, D-I-C-T-U-M. Kranz called a meeting of his branch and flight control team on the Monday morning following the, the Apollo 1 disaster that killed Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chafee. Kranz made the following address to the gathering, the Kranz dictum, in which his expression of values and admonishments of, for future spaceflight are his legacy to NASA. Spaceflight will never tolerate carelessness, incapacity, and neglect. Somewhere, somehow, we screwed up. It could have been in design, build, or test. Whatever it was, we should have caught it. We were too gung-ho about the schedule, and we locked out all the problems we saw each day in our work. Every element of the program was in trouble, and so were we. The simulators were not working. Mission control was behind in virtually every area, and the flight and test procedures changed daily. Nothing we did had any shelf life. Not one of us stood up and said, Damn it, stop! I don't know what Thompson's committee will find as the cause. I guess they were doing an investigation of this. But I know what I find. We are the cause. We were not ready. We did not do our job. We were rolling the dice, hoping that things would come together by launch day, when in our hearts we knew it would take a miracle. We were pushing the schedule and betting that the cape would slip before we did. From this day forward, flight control will be known by two words, tough and competent. Tough means we are forever accountable for what we do or what we fail to do. We will never again compromise our responsibilities. Every time we walk into mission control, we will know what we stand for. Competent means we will never take anything for granted. We will never be found short in our knowledge and in our skills. Mission control will be perfect. When you leave this meeting today, you will go to your office and the first thing you will do there is to write tough and competent on your blackboards. It will never be erased. Each day, when you enter the room, these words will remind you of the price paid by Grissom, White, and Chafee. These words are the price of admission to the ranks of mission control. Wow. Some strong words. Only that be reflected in more of our daily life nowadays. Yes. 
And I was thinking maybe I need to write it in my office, you know? No yeah. kidding. I mean, talking about yeah. like, what's the thing today? You know, so you're going to blame it on somebody else. Oh, it wasn't my fault. You know, Absolutely. I had a bad childhood. Yep. Or whatever. No, this is like, we're taking responsibility. We screwed up. And mm-hmm. it cost the lives of three men. All right. Anyway, Toledo, thank you, Liz, for educating us on the uh, the crayons. Yeah. Um, so, as I mentioned, they, they voted to, uh, to change the name of the airport and a little disappointed that they didn't name it for Jamie Farr. But, oh well. By the way, if you're making an approach, it must be quite hard because you're going to have to say, um, Eugene F. Cran Salado Express Airport Approach. <laughs> this is Acme 123. Uh, I mean, that's going to get a bit tedious after I a while. I think that we'll do the same thing that we will uh, that we do when we go on to Little Rock. We don't say the Bill and Hillary Clinton International Airport control tower. This is Acme. You know, <laughs> don't look too much of it. <laughs> on little. the Atlanta arrival, I have a problem. You've been saying, I always have to, always have to say, Hey, Larry. Larry. Hey, How about- La- H. Larry. Oh, oh okay. I-, I can't say that name. Yeah, Sorry. okay. Um, we're not going to go into politics here. No, we're not. Um, I'm saying H. Larry. I just say tower. <laughs> that usually works. Yeah. What are you? Yeah. <laughs> Whoever's listening to my voice at this moment, clear yeah. me the land, please. Um, but um, so did you get my Jamie Farr reference? I think Steph probably did. Maybe not. not. No, I okay. actually didn't. I was going to. I actually was scrolling through the article to see if I had missed something. I was like, what "No, that? Um, I did not get one." He he played uh, Klinger on Mash. Oh, Klinger okay, was okay. from Toledo, Sorry. Ohio. Yes. Okay. He was. Oh, we'll yeah. <laughs> well, his character was. I don't know if Jamie is actually. All right. Got it. <laughs> oh 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 oh. I think this one should be read by the honorable Captain Nick. Item seven. <laughs> this is. Uh, do I have to read it? Oh, this is quite. Long. Or, or maybe no. Let me read this part, and then you can read your response. All right. Okay. Yeah, we. One of our pre. Or yeah. Um, recent episodes was entitled "There's No Such Thing as a Balloon Pilot," <laughs> and I have to say that only one person on the APG crew expressed their feelings about this. Um. <laughs> And uh, here we go. Hi, AVGers, captains, doctors, and listeners. There are such things as balloon pilots. First of all, let me tell you, I really appreciate the wonderful APG podcast. I've been listening for a couple of years now, and it makes my long drives to work much more pleasant. And the fun thing is, I never speak to anyone about APG. And oh, and the fun thing is, I never speak to anyone about APG and listening to it every week. So in a way, you are my secret friends in which I share our common disease, APG syndrome. Wait a minute, does that mean he's embarrassed to tell people that he listens to the show? And certainly he's not increasing our listenership. No. Okay. Well, anyway. Let's throw this one away. I don't think we should. (laughs) Let's just move on to the next. (laughs) No, no, no. We're going to continue. But near the end of uh, episode 391, for the first time I had to frown and shake my head while listening to the podcast when Captain Nick said some unfriendly things about balloon pilots. And he has a sad face. Uh, as I am both a fixed-wing pilot and a balloon pilot, let me tell Captain Nick a few things about ballooning. History uh, learns us that the true pioneers in aviation's... Uh, I, th- I have a feeling that Emil is not... Um, uh, English is not his, his first language, I believe. Um, or maybe just uh, 
bad auto correction here. So let me say what or maybe I, he intended it that way, or maybe he did. As I am both a fixed wing pilot and as well as a balloon pilot, let me tell Captain Nick a few things about ballooning. History tells us uh, that or teaches us that the true pioneers in aviation were balloonists. In 1783, Pelatra de Rosier <laughs> became the first, not bad, huh? uh, to travel through the air and thus the world's first pilot. In the hot air balloon made by the Montgolfier brothers, he made a short flight over the city of Paris, reaching up to 3,000 feet. But a year earlier, the first ever flying living creatures were a sheep, duck, and a rooster, making them the world's first test pilots. Didn't you do a PT about the, that? Uh, yes, I did. Okay. Um, so, oh, and... Is that old news, but if you get yeah. back to my plane tales, you can find out lots more. Yeah, well, he's still, he's still trying to ch- catch up. And by the way, I think I remember him saying he's from the Netherlands or something, so I think maybe there was some Something lost in the uh, translation of your English humor. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. And moving on, hopefully not getting you bored too much with my feedback. Let me tell you something about the art of ballooning. I pretty much started my fixed wing training in the same period as my ballooning flight training back in 1994. And I can tell that even as easy as ballooning may seem, learning to fly a balloon at some points is much harder than learning to fly a plane. Much has to do with the enormous mass inertia of a balloon. A small balloon can easily have a capacity of 100, now is that 100,000 cubic feet? Probably. Meaning that, 100,000. Okay. Meaning that the effect or climb or, de, of, or descent of a burner blast from the basket only takes place 10 up to even 20 seconds after the blast. All depending on load, outside temperature. Once you've developed that specific feeling of the balloon's behavior, a balloon can be handled very precisely, up to inches when flying close to the ground. Now, as we don't have any means of controlling the direction of flight, we can use upper winds and directions. (laughs) Wait, wait, we're not arguing this anymore. Now stop. (laughs) We're trying to get this out of the way. He's going to make a point. Even small local weather effects can help steer a balloon. Okay, we can't make a rate one turns or fly from one airport to another, but that's the romantic aspect of ballooning. Uh, yes, honey, it's a romantic. Uh, flying into the unknown makes every flight special and adventurous. On top of that, balloon pilots are excellent lovers. Oh, wait, no, meteorolo- meteorologists <laughs> who depend a lot on their own observations. <laughs> I'm just trying to read between the lines here. Um, Nowadays, ballooning is an air sport with an excellent safety record, and commercial operators fly hundreds of thousands of passengers around the world, giving them the absolute best views from the sky. Wow, I didn't realize there were that many. Uh, And yes, Captain Nick, you do have to have a license to fly a balloon. Training is well organized, and you even need a commercial pilot license to fly paying passengers. A packet of uh, cereal uh, with your (laughs) breakfast in the morning, if you want. Refresher courses as well as... Two yearly proficiency checks are mandatory. I guess I have to wrap up now. I don't really blame Captain Nick for his ignorance or unawareness about ballooning. (laughs) So I have a challenge for him and invite him to come fly with me in my balloon and give him his first ballooning lesson. Captain Nick, hop over on the North Sea and pay a visit to our low countries. Fly with me in my balloon up, up and away and get that great feeling of ancient aviation. Balloon. I, hear a I hear a meetup coming. You might find a great hobby for oh. the years to come after your well-deserved retirement. Wishing you all the best. Oh, at the very end now, he's kind of trying to kind of make it sweeter and not so bad. Uh, wishing you all the best from the Netherlands. Keep the blue side up, tailwinds, and many happy landings to come. And this is from Emiel Achterberg, a balloon pilot. Emiel, in-, in-, in your honor, Nick, I don't think you have any more landings left. <laughs> right. 
And then I'd be too frightened that we'd end up in the North Sea if we... Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I did actually reply. You didn't yes, swim. you did. I did reply. To what you. did you reply? I said, um, thanks for all that. And I'm sure Jeff will enjoy reading it out on the show because he likes embarrassing. <laughs> but you did know I was pulling your balloon pilot's leg, didn't you? No. Yours, Nick. <laughs> P.S. I was right, though, wasn't I? You could only go up or down. PPS, I've got a few plain tales about aerostats, so I'm not quite as ignorant <laughs> as I might seem. Now, he's a relatively new listener. He, he didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I read his email, I'm thinking, oh, boy, oh, boy. Nick is going to get a kick out of this because, yes, Nick has done some very, very wonderful uh, plain tales about balloon pilots. And I knew when he was doing that during the show, <laughs> he was going to get some people upset with him. We know we never heard from Grant, did we? No, we didn't. I was did, a bit disappointed because I was poking the bear there. And I thought, <laughs> it's perhaps well played by either Grant hasn't listened to that yet, yeah. or it's well played by Grant because he knows that by not responding, that will make you even more. Yes. Uh, <laughs> looking over your shoulder. I find it unusual that an Australian can't instantly uh, react to a like that. <laughs> no, I'm really surprised. I even said, I think I sent something to Grant or I said something in my tweet about the fact that the that, that episode was being released. And I said, in my tweet, um, I apologize personally to Grant McCarran for the <laughs> title of the show. <laughs> He's got a great uh, sense of humor, so I'm sure that uh, he'll come up with something funny in response. But I like yeah, I'd like to thank Emil for coming back because yeah. otherwise that, that whole episode would have passed unremarked and it would have been a great waste of my time. It was it was really <laughs> great hearing from you, Emil, and uh, and and we're not. I mean, I'm glad that you took it the wrong way, but uh, now I think you understand. It was just uh, our wacky or his wacky English humor, I guess you could call it half Australian, half English. Yes, that. that. Yes. English sad speaking. Sad combination. Sad combination. <laughs> I think, oh, I don't know. The way, the, way I, the way I understand you, started off as a um, Australian and you ended up in a um, an English one. Uh, I'll let you think about that for a second. No, I was born in, born in England, so I started off in England. Forget about it. I'll explain it to you in, in the private chat. I don't get okay. it either. So. Not to worry. You'll have to explain it to all of us. Okay. Your father, father is a Aussie, right? Yeah. And your mother is a English woman. Oh, right? Okay. Okay. We're moving on. Moving on. All right. Here we go. Uh, family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. Okay. Oh, Liz is still with us somewhere. She must be holed up somewhere outside of her home because she actually gave us the warning that we have 15 minutes left in our show. So I was just about to ask you guys, do you have any idea how much time we have left? Uh, but let's keep forging on with another producer of our show and also the uh, guy who does our uh, great introductions, radio, Roger Stern. He sent us some email. Nope, some audio feedback is what I mean to say. Okay, here we go. You're on. Oh. It's not anything that I did wrong. It, it has to be It has to be Roger that did something wrong. Sorry, Roger. Roger, forgot to press your Greetings, buttons. APG crew. This is Radio Roger. My feedback concerns a flight my wife took from Los Angeles to New York on Acme, or on a very similar airline. 
To set the scene, the flight was late pushing back from the gate at LAX because of delays at JFK, so there was clearly pressure on the crew to take off as soon as possible. While the plane was still on the ground, the woman sitting next to my wife turned and asked, is this flight going to Los Angeles? A disturbing question since the flight was leaving LA. There were other oddities in what she was saying. She continued to express concern about her carry-on luggage, despite repeated assurances that it was tucked away by the bulkhead behind her seat. My wife, worried enough about this woman's mental state, flagged down a flight attendant. The crew then escorted this lady to the back of the plane for a discussion. After that, the decision was made, I assume by the captain, to return to the gate even though they were running late and take the woman off the flight. My question to the APG crew is, have you ever had to remove a passenger who may be disoriented or emotionally or mentally disturbed but was not creating a problem for others? How would you handle such a situation? And do you have a mental health professional on call, just as you have a physician on call in case of a medical emergency? Anyway, thought it was an interesting subject. This is Radio Roger, over and out. Honestly, Roger, I thought you were going to ask us if that was Dr. Steph, but apparently not. that wasn't your question. <laughs> so, that was the one being removed from the aircraft? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's just sometimes Steph enjoys her beers a little bit too much, let's just say. <laughs> um, well, I don't neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> I've never had this situation. Dana probably has because he has all kinds of I've issues like this so far. Yeah, yeah but uh, no, I've never had anybody like crazy uh, having to be removed from any of my flights. Uh, Dana, have you? Um, no. I mean, as, as far as a psychological crazy, I haven't had to have that uh, discussion with anybody as of yet. Fortunately, uh, however, uh, certainly the uh, belligerent passenger um, referencing certain um, apparatuses on, on a person's body. Or how about uh, somebody was, who's crazy good looking? Well, um, yeah, well, then they take me off the airplane all the time. What are you talking about? <laughs> I don't know if oh, we have no, any. No, no, you're saying crazy good looking. I'm sorry. Yeah. You, um, you're not referring to me. No. Um, <laughs> um, no, I, I haven't. Uh, I, you know what? The only two instances so far have been those two. Uh, alcohol um, I, I want to say I was going to say alcoholic but that's not probably the right term alcohol related uh, situations that they were removed so that's it so I don't so know far. I don't think we have anybody on our staff that uh, is no. like a licensed psychologist psychiatrist or whatever um, in our I think, enhanced I think team. we would convene the security team on that right. one, Jeff I mean that would be my 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 guess right that's what I would say as well um, Nick, do you recall? Um, I know it's been a while since you've flown as a pilot for an airline, but do you recall anything about your career? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he's completely seen that. Can't remember. You, I'm things. sorry. You're equating me to a goldfish, are you? Uh. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. Do you, did you do you know anything about the behind the scenes kind of things that might be going on at um, at your old airline, Virgin? Uh, no, I don't recall uh, us having a particular expert in that field available to us. Um, the few occasions we've had people who uh, have been a bit odd, uh, it's often turned out to be um, illegal substances they've consumed and not uh, uh, a genuine mental problem. Mm -hmm. um, 
if it happens on the ground, it's res and you think there might be a danger to themselves or unable to um, behave themselves during the flight, that's the easy decision. You just go back to the gate. And uh, more importantly, uh, you have them assessed by someone and then you can make a decision where they can subsequently fly on a, the next airplane. If it's in the air, then uh, the general feeling is uh, unless there's a problem, you carry on because you're going to create more hassle by turning around than you would if you uh, just plowed on to your destination. Uh, but uh, no, the few times that it has happened, uh, uh, it's, it's often something like... Um, We've got deportees who do some really weird stuff. Um, and uh, that's generally speaking to get themselves thrown off the airplane so they were not being deported. But there you go. Uh, you know what? And I, and <clears throat> I tread lightly on this because uh, it is a sem sensitive uh, topic. But the, uh, the thing that would uh, come to my, my mind on that would be uh, anybody, anybody that's coming with these social, uh, well, social, that's probably the wrong word, uh, not social, the. Uh, um, Pat, the uh, the uh, what's the word I'm trying? You know what? Getting I'm I'm actually really tired. Brain thought. I've been up since about four thirty this morning. So, um, the emotional support animals mm -hmm. just came to me. So you know that's showing that there's more of an issue out there. I, I don't know if it's really people trying to skate around the system or whether those people are. You know, I'm I am not a person to judge. My father would have been. Because that's what his profession was. He was a psychologist, um, but maybe there's more of a, a social issue nowadays because of because of there's a, a new norm. So I don't know, but I, I can see you know some of these people we've reported you know we've reported on it in, in the past and talking about uh, I think it was a little, little horse that was recently on 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 the show we're talking about yeah on, if you, on, if you yeah. like yell and scream too much yeah and, 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 yeah horse. exactly and, you know in in these these pets that come on as emotional support animals that like to bite people yeah. i mean there's all types of issues that are being created um because of this and i don't know if those people are truly uh, and again I, I say this and I, I proclaim this i am not a uh, a professional so i don't know uh, and i can't say that whether people are uh, crazy or not crazy but there are a lot of people in observation that are now traveling with these um, uh, service animals that may or may not be um, yeah I insecure. think I think most of the cases of those are just people trying to transport their pets uh, for and not pay anything for the service I'm guessing well Could that be would wrong. be my guess as well but again yeah. I mean I'm not in a position to make that judgment yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. I mean, right. we, we we can act. You know, we can have our personal opinions on it, and uh, certainly uh, it's it's a more than likely the case that you're you know you're saying, Jeff. Mm -hmm. However, I, I think uh, realistically, uh, you know, there's a trend towards a lot more social instability. Uh, I'm seeing it, you know, especially with with people coming up that the only thing they know how to socialize is with a phone or a computer yeah. or a TV set with playing games so True. i see where that's starting to come into play that's really what i'm trying to explain yeah so hopefully there's not more instances of hang, this. if you don't mind I, hang on I, I need to finish this game on my phone before we move on <laughs> i don't actually play games on my phone okay um thank you all for your input hopefully that answered your question uh radio roger anything else before we move on to ramiro questions for captain nick uh -oh. First of all, my first question, 
why did Captain Jeff ask you to be a host on the show? You'll have to ask Captain Jeff. No, I'm just kidding. Because he's brilliant. You may never know. He's (laughs) brilliant. Um, No, he says, I hope everybody is doing, everyone is doing well. For this feedback, I was hoping to ask Captain Nick a few questions. He does such a great job with his plain tales and has done a few where his where he interviews interesting people. I would like to turn the tables on him if he will indulge and ask him the questions uh, this time. Ask him sorry, the questions. Sorry, no press. No press. Uh, okay, sorry. Item one. During your airline career, did you fly any other aircraft types besides the A330 and the A340? I've been no. listening. I'll move on to the next one. <laughs> I have been listening yeah. to the podcast for more than two years now and have not heard you mention flying any other type. Okay, now you can answer. No. Okay. Uh, 1B, if your airline career had gone in a different direction and you ended up coming out of the Air Force and been hired to fly the 777 or 747, would you be a fan of Boeing aircraft or is there something about them that you truly dislike? <laughs> No, I think, uh, as I've said before, as a professional pilot, you put on the the uniform you're given, you fly the airplane in front of you. It really doesn't matter. I'm sure after a while you get used to anything. So uh, I eventually got used to Airbus, and I think partly because you're now familiar with it, you feel more comfortable with it, and you're uh, happy uh, to say, this is a great airplane. But Just like your spouse. (laughs) Exactly. No, having flown a Boeing, uh, I wouldn't really know what a Boeing's like. So, uh, you know, I, I profess an opinion, but that's it, it's a biased opinion. Boing, 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 boing. And, boing. and that is very true, Nick. I mean, that. I mean, look, look at Jeff and I. Jeff has flown. You've only flown three airplanes at Acme, right? Yes. You've only flown the L10, the seven. You've got more than three airplanes. And, oh, and Mad Dog. Between, sorry. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. And I actually love the Mad Dog, but. Truthfully, that's really all I've ever flown at Acme, and I've heard that uh, you know a lot of my distinguished gentleman friends uh, have told you me don't that have the other distinguished gentleman friends. <laughs> You've got gentleman friends. <laughs> I do actually. I'm certainly not Liar. gentleman. I, I never respond to that. So. <laughs> I'm not a gentleman. I know your friends. So that's why I had to they ain't that no gentleman. There. Uh, that there's a much better life on the other side, uh, both in the quality of life, in the type of flying that we have available. And also the uh, ability and the usability of the equipment. I mean, you get to know the idiosyncrasies of, of the equipment that you fly, and thus uh, you become um, very comfortable with it and, and tend to like it far more. Excellent. Sure. Item two. Actually, this is question number three. He's trying to squeeze an extra question in there, but um, I noticed that. Yeah, he's cheating. Ramiro. He's, he's Ramiro. cheating for sure. <laughs> HR will be contacting you. Uh, now that you have been retired for a while, what is, uh, what? Okay. Now that, what is the number, what one, is the number thing? one thing you miss, miss about being an airline captain? Okay. Am I misreading something here or are you just, yes. okay. Now that you have been retired for a while, what is the number one thing? You oh, miss is. About Thank you. Airline captain. Yeah. Gotcha. What is the number one thing you miss about being an airline captain? Steph said it's much better. Getting off the airplane. <laughs> getting off the airplane. <laughs> Okay. Um, what is the one thing that you do not miss about being, do not miss about being an airline captain? Everything else. <laughs> You've been thinking so about the answers. You, you didn't like any of it. <laughs> That's a lie. True. That's true. No. We don't Nick, why is your nose growing? <laughs> yeah. You have a big nose now, sir. 
Oh, dear. Um, what's the thing I miss about being an airline captain? Uh, I guess... Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, miss the money. Um, it is... Uh, I still think now it's, uh, it's a highly respected job, and uh, it was always nice to uh, meet people, uh, particularly when you're going to work, who uh, uh, like to come up and go, hi there, captain. And it's often, you know, you go to a place like Lagos and there'd be some chap cleaning the floor and he would look up and say, oh, hello, captain. And they would, you know, you could tell if you spent a few moments chatting to them and just said, oh, hi, how's he getting on, etc." Um, you kind of felt like you had, they, they were very pleased that you'd acknowledge them because, you know, the big almighty captain took time to talk to me and I'm just a floor cleaner. That kind of doesn't actually really say that very well. It makes it sound a bit arrogant, and I don't mean it to be that. No, I understand what you mean. But th there is an element of pride in the doing the job. When you got four stripes, uh, it's very nice to be able to um, receive uh, an element of uh, admiration and to try and, you know, uh, get along with everyone and make everyone feel like they're part of the team that are helping you get the aircraft off the ground. That's and part of being just a great, uh, a great commander. Um, a good, a good leader and, yeah. uh, not everybody does that and, or can, doesn't you have bring a, everyone else along with you. Right. You, know, you raise up, you raise up those around you. And you know what? That is actually part of airmanship. I think. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, it's part of the whole thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. The one thing I don't miss, uh, sticking my hand in the greasy hole. We had a, um, a little locker on the floor of the Airbus where we used to keep the uh, gear pins, and it was the captain's job to put his hand in this greasy hole and fumble about until you found all four pins. And by the time you put your hand out, it was black with grease. So, uh, yeah, that was the bit I didn't like. What are you we had talking to do it. about? It's, it's the captain's job to make sure all the pins are out. Wow. Okay. Glad that that's not a job for me. Sticking <laughs> <laughs> your hand in the greasy hole. Yeah. yeah. Makes makes the coal burning seem a whole lot. Yeah, really. It does, doesn't it? The and black lung and the coal burning out, is nothing. I used to say fork <laughs> handles because that's an old reference to <laughs> the sketch with Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett where they play lots of tricks, verbal tricks in each other about fork handles. So, oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Okay, um, this is. I'll just make this very quick because I know we're over the three-hour point at this point. Uh, this is from Tim Kern, and he sent us a link to something. And um, many people who fly airplanes are also talented in other ways, and one of those ways for some of us is um, music. And many pilots out there, many, um, the good ones anyway, are uh, musicians. <laughs> Now the trumpet isn't a musical especially, instrument. We know that. Especially it's the, just something you stick on your car to let people know you're coming. Especially the trumpet players. They're probably the most talented pilots out there ever. And uh, anyway, so he uh, sent us a link to this thing. It's called the Flying Musicians Association, celebrating 10 years. And they, uh, let's see, the Flying Musicians Association recognizes the correlation between hard work and skill required by both learning and to fly and learning music. 
practice, precision, working with others, multitasking, and ultimately performance. And to that end has opened the floor to nominations for the sixth year to passionate student musicians for the 2020 FMA solo program. The program has averaged two plus scholarships per year in the first five years while welcoming nearly 200 new student members into the FMA network. And so basically they have a scholarship and uh, the application for the scholarship closes, I think, at the end of June. I'm sorry, January end of January. 31st. Thank you, January of next year. And um, so if you are a student musician and you want to get a scholarship for, and I, did you read through this stuff? Is it only to be accepted into a college program that uh, is for flying or does it matter? I have a feeling it makes I- I don't know that it matters. It says, so it says um, they assist student members grow through aviation and music. Uh, the they have to have a passion for both. Nine students uh, with two in the wing. Yeah. So and now additional uh, many additional private pilots that have come from this program. Right. So I don't know that it has to be a yeah. I, 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 think, I think they would prefer that, but um, you know, if you're if you have a passion for flying and a passion for music. Uh, and you want some, you know, some money to go toward your college education, uh, which uh, is important. I think that you should check this out. And it's also being sponsored by some people, some companies that you may have heard of: Bose Aviation, Sporty's Pilot Shop, uh, amongst other. Glime Aviation, Hartzell Propeller, Forflight, Honda Power Equipment, and Sensenic Propellers, Aeroshell. Anyway, there's a lot of uh, great sponsors for this scholarship. So. If uh, you're interested, um, just check out the show notes and apply. There you go. Very cool. And just don't mention the Airline Pilot Guy show anywhere in the... You, you won't get, yeah. get in if you do. Uh, that'll be... blacklisted there, for sure. Yeah, blackballed. Okay, that is it for today's show. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to everything, but almost. So uh, next time, we're going to start with uh, Ed... Um, talking about the Cessna 500 crash, Mike, a Canadian short film featuring women pilots, um, uh, Ben, Carter, Gustav, Stephen, and maybe you. So if you want to send us feedback, send it to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. Head over to our website where we have a contact us page and you can send us feedback that way if you'd like. Also a link to SpeakPipe where you can record something for us if you don't want to use your recording app on your device and send it as an attachment to the email to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com and we are on social media we are you can head over to twitter twitter.com uh, no just twitter.com and at apg crew is the handle that you want to use to find us there you can also head over to facebook.com slash in this case airline pilot guy um, lots of good ways to interact with us um, on either platform And we really hope to see you there. Absolutely. And we're also on Slack. Sorry, Jeff, I might have used all your skin lotion. (laughs) Hello. That's kind of embarrassing. (laughs) Come on out of the bathroom, come over here, and tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. 
To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Ah, oh yeah, Delta P. All right. <laughs> Thanks, hello. Look forward to uh, seeing you, hello, uh, tomorrow. And uh, with that, uh, anything else? Oh, thank you, Liz, for continuing to be our producer, even under terms or situations where people are kicking you out of your home. And uh, we do appreciate all the hard work that you do behind the scenes. People just never know how much she does to help us out and to make us look as good as we possibly can. I could not do this without Yeah. And with that, wishing you clear skies and limited visibility and tailwinds. Talons, Douglas. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall I got no friends Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy